Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, September the 9th, 843-661-0937. Uh, good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Uh, Freehold's on. Uh, he's moving around a bit over there this morning. Um, okay. I normally have a rundown list. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a big list on Monday. It's a smaller list on Tuesday, a smaller list on Wednesday, an even smaller list on Thursday. And by Friday, it's, you know, it's normally kind of sort of a blank sheet because the shows have forward momentum. They gain a little energy. Um, some topics are more interesting than others. And it, it kind of culminates with a Friday edition of which I don't, it doesn't recap the previous four shows, but it, it's kind of build upon uh, those other four shows. It's a little bit like flying in the summer. I mean, my brother and father are pilots. Or my father was pilot. Um, and they're always talking about buildups. Buildup. I mean, it was a buildup. Well, I mean, it's one of these. It can happen in a nanosecond. You know, if you're flying in the summer down south, you have these buildups. Like you the and ther- I would. Thermal pockets. Yeah. And uh, sales. You know, yeah. I mean, it, in, in the world of aviation. Like storms. I don't know if it's a storm as much as a. Um, it's it's a pocket of activity and you got to be real careful about um the normal delay between the weather you get in a plane is about four or five minutes so it used to be nine or ten minutes so what you're seeing visually is not exactly what you're flying into so you got to be real aware and guarded about you know these these on um, build-ups and i remember thinking about what is a build-up i mean is, it's is this a thunderstorm it's a supercell uh yeah to some degree but but it's, it's kind of a weather it's weather activity within a small pocket um i mean you're familiar with flying mm-hmm. and um and you know how dangerous it is to be in a small aircraft uh kind of a private aircraft i'm not talking about jets now i'm not talking about i'm talking about single engine cessnas and things like yeah, that that you stay out of the storms yeah well, i mean you got to go at us you know what i mean you got to be real careful <laughs> with that got to go at us what do you mean um well i got to go i got to get there i got to be there i got to get that done okay i mean that's how people land in fields you know nose right. first and the families die or the pilot and his friend die, you know, trying to get to wherever it was they're trying to get to. Um, I got a friend of mine flying to Arkansas to the football game. He's leaving today. And, and a lot of his concern is the weather patterns. You know, it's in the South. It's humid. It's hot. It's chaotic. It's uncertain. And um, and you just got to be careful. I mean, you just got to be fly around. You zig and you zag and you go throughout. So, so the, the radio show is kind of like that. There, there have been a handful of buildups throughout the week that gained a little bit of energy and attention um one has been this dawn staley story it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger espn had a big piece on it yesterday cbs sports had a big bid on it yesterday um the state newspaper this is interesting as a, as a fellow gamecock fan the state newspaper um had an article about the freedom caucus the south carolina freedom caucus um asked the university to provide the information that it uh, that that it allowed, well, I mean, it helped allow them make a decision on whether to cancel the game or not. Um, they've not responded. They've been slow to react. But but I found this very interesting. Uh, in the article, it's it represents the opinion of the Freedom Caucus, and it kind of juxtaposes that with Don Staley's comments. And, guys, this is much deeper than women's basketball. I mean, if it was women's basketball, who gives a John Brown? I mean, in all honesty, you know, I mean, I, a certain universe of people do, but that's, that's few and far between. Um, that they're, they're, If the Gamecock fan, if the Gamecock faithful had a chance to say the football goes, the football team goes five and seven, but the basketball, the women's basketball team wins a national championship, or the football team goes eight and four, and the women's basketball team doesn't win a game, 
the majority of Gamecock fans would say, give me that eight and four. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I think, you know, anything higher than eight and four is being a little bit unrealistic and sort of um, in Shane Beamer's second year. But yeah, if you ask the Gamecock fan, you know, winning a national championship in women's basketball or winning eight games in football, you get one or the other. 90% of the Gamecock fans are going to take the 8-4 and four football season. Sure. I mean, I'd certainly take it today. Um, Dawn doesn't want to hear that, and the fans of women's basketball don't want to hear that. So, our, you know, CNN and NBC and CBS, I mean, they do their thing, and it's about, you know, a courageous African-American coach, you know, standing up for her team. I mean, you would expect that to be the narrative of CNN. But when you get to some of the, um, some of the local reports, state newspaper had a big article uh, reposted on Twitter. might have been Facebook or Twitter. Not Facebook. Um, I read 70 comments, had about 400 comments, had about uh, 2,000 likes and about 400 comments. Um, of the 400 comments, it was overwhelmingly in support of Don Staley. Hmm. Go get them, coach. Protect your players, coach. Okay. Um, now, a lot of these, I mean, I'd, I'd Google on, I mean, I'm weird this way, but I would go on. So if someone put a comment of, you know, I, I support Don Staley 100%. I would go online, and, and they normally have their profile, you know, the user profile. Mm -hmm. And they would normally be a state employee, you know, some sort of government employee, uh, had some sort of activist role. If you Googled down, excuse me, not Googled, if you um, scroll down there past eight or ten posts, uh, Trump sucks. <laughs> so so you, you know, actually did research to find out a little bit well, I mean, more it, about the post. Well, I mean, I, I think there's... They see where they're coming sure. from. Sure. I see. Sure. Well, of course, yeah. Well, I mean, so, so I get that. the point I'm trying to make is woke <laughs> is alive and well. You want to know how much credibility to assign that person's well, I mean, comment Well, to. you know what what motivated them to make that post as supportive of it on... They don't know anything. Now, now the, the, the few posts that I saw that said... Because um, they would respond to these. So you got a lady with a Billy Idol haircut, and she works for the government. Um, and she's, you know, she rescues dogs and she saves whales and she goes on hiking and camping trips. I'm not, I'm not demeaning that lifestyle, but that kind of leads you to believe, yeah, I'm judging the book by its cover. Yeah. Guilty as charged. I'm judging a book by its cover. I'm sorry. Um, judging that book by its cover kind of led me down the road of, okay, wonder what their political tendencies are. Wonder what they believe in what, what motivates them to be involved or active, uh, in supporting Don Staley and, invariably it was you know uh we, we got to create a more equality or more equity in society got to be more inclusive and more diverse and i mean that was kind of a common theme but it was amazing to me not amazing to me it was a little bit troubling to me to see how many people just had a blind loyalty you know they're woke they're politically correct they believe in this d-e-i-e-s-g all of these liberal political, you know, tendencies or or opinions, um, and when someone would challenge them, uh, someone like me or you would say, "Hey, all I'm saying is, show me the proof, provide the evidence." I mean, if somebody at BYU did what we're told they did uh, to to allow a female basketball coach to cancel a women's basketball game, then I mean, is there verifiable proof of that? Doesn't matter. She has a right to do it. Wow. Okay, that's pretty shallow-minded. I mean, I get you believe in woke and political correct and, you know, the, this modern enlightened version of American politics, but that's absurd and, and silly, to be honest with you. So, so I've concluded. I mean, there, there were a couple of posts that made valid points. Better safe than sorry. Okay, I mean, I think that's a, a kind of a shallow argument, but I get it. I mean, there's some legitimacy there. Um, but, but all of a sudden, Dome doesn't have to prove anything. 
She's our coach. She's got a right to do what she wants to do. Does she? I mean, does Dawn Staley have a right to do exactly what she wants to do when she wants to do it? Um, if we hear today that somebody from um, Utah was mistreated last week in Little Rock, Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas, I'm just being hypothetical here for a second. I think Charles said it yesterday, and I need to find out if that was my oldest kid or youngest kid that cussed Charles out at the – no, I'm kidding. I mean, of course it – well, I mean, I better hush. I don't know that it was <laughs> or was not. I mean, is that really where we are? I mean, is that where we've gotten, that, that a coach has the authority – to cancel an athletic event um, that involves a state-funded university, public institution, because they hear something or feel a little bit uncomfortable? I mean, that's absurd. I mean, that's silly. I don't care how many Billy Idol haircuts there are. I don't know how many waves you sail or, or save or, or dogs you rescue. Uh, God bless you for being good-spirited and, and, you know, and, and altruistic and wanting to make the world a better place. But, but to suggest that Dawn Staley has a right to do that just because she has a right to do that is a little bit asinine. I mean, it's a little bit absurd. And once again, Rev, if it were about women's basketball, I would move on. Because I don't know how many people are real interested in women's basketball. I mean, there's 20,000 in, in Columbia that are. The, the, the men's team draws 8,000 for a game. The women's team draws sixteen or, or 17,000 uh, per game. People like winning. And, you know, when you go watch the Lady Gamecocks play, there's a what? 86% chance they're going to win? I mean, I think that's her winning percentage, 84, 85, 86%. So, yeah, I mean, they, they don't lose many. What do they want? Um, but it, it was just so interesting to me to read some of the comments, how shallow-minded but proud they were to support Don Staley. And maybe that's what makes politicians nervous or an athletics director nervous, or a board of trustees, or, or a college president nervous. And Dawn knows this. I mean, she's an African-American female. She's highly successful at whatever it is she does. Now, I mean, I think Dawn will admit that, yeah, you know, college football drives the train, college basketball kind of rides shotgun. The rest of the sports are money losers, no matter what you win or how good you are. And, um, and I think Dawn matters because she was the U.S. Olympic team basketball coach in women's. And then her along with Gino Ariema are probably the faces, the two faces. Remember for a long time I argued that Clemson and Alabama were the two-headed monster that kind of ruled college football. I mean, I don't think that's the case now. I think Georgia's one of the um, two-headed monsters now. Maybe even Ohio State. Clemson's got some issues with quarterback and offense. They'll clean some of that up. I don't know how much they'll clean up. Will they clean up enough to be as good as Georgia and Alabama? We shall see. But the two-headed monster in women's basketball is Geno and Dawn. I mean, they're the two people that matter most in women's basketball. And once again, that universe is much smaller than the college football universe. But, but it, just, it, it amazes me how many people have that shallow a belief in, in the actions of a head basketball coach. So, so apparently Dawn can do anything and not have to defend herself. And I'm telling you guys, this is an embarrassment to the university if indeed it comes to fruition. I read something at about 6.30 last night uh, in a Utah newspaper that they have watched the video of the entire game. They have identified the person that has been accused of making these racial slurs. There is no evidence whatsoever. I mean, there's closed-circuit television, you know, security cameras and whatnot that, that have monitored the entire game. They have pieced. Um, th there's a couple of edits they had to do to piece one angle to another angle and this and that and the other, but they have... But they have the game in its entirety on film. And there is no evidence whatsoever of this person. They've identified this person 
that has been accused of making those racial slurs, and there is zero evidence that that person did what they've been accused of. Now, now once again, that's a report. That's not, you know, someone standing in front of a podium saying, hey, here's what we've done. Here's what we have. This is kind of a leak from the BYU police force um, to the local media outlet of choice. And um, and that's kind of where we stand today. So, so the point I'm making is who can cancel what? I mean, that, that's why I'm concerned. I mean, as a, as a South, Carolina, South Carolina, not a Gamecock fan, put that in the back pocket for a second. Because if this were Clemson, I think Gamecock fans have a right to be irate. I think being at South Carolina, Clemson fans have a right to comment. It's a publicly funded state university. I mean, it's the flagship university of the state of South Carolina. And they made a very um, controversial decision on, on behalf of the university, but also, you know, dragging along, kicking and screaming the taxpayers of South Carolina. And um, I don't think Philip can be with us this morning. I, I think Jay will be here, and I think Mike will be here. But, um, and, you know, we talked a little bit yesterday. Um, what is their role in this? What is their responsibility to the taxpayer when, when the university does something? I mean, I, I'm arguing it's egregious. Some would disagree. I think the majority of people on Facebook disagree. It's go, Dawn, go. Whatever Dawn wants to do, Dawn should be allowed to do. That, that's absurd. And that can't stand. And I hope we are a little more serious people than that. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze to start off our Friday morning. Hey, Breeze. Kid, I, kid, I want to make an admission right now in front of God, country, and all the radio land that I am a racist. I hate about 50% of the white race. So I am as big a racist as there is out there. And I'd like to join with my brothers and sisters of color to go whip. 50% of the white races asked today because they make me want to vomit in my mouth. It's, it's, you know what? We are the, 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 we are the problem. I guarantee you that the majority of these people that are, I don't know what the woke term part is, but are posturing around to show what good people they are, are white. But, you know, we got Our race is the biggest bunch of fruitcakes that's ever been on planet Earth. I wonder if I can get fired for Bedangle saying I hate half of the white. Well, I guess I probably could because half, the half I'm talking about are a bunch of damn godless fascist Democrats. But here's the deal. If you could get fired for reading another uh, – uh, there was a – remember the football coach that got fired because he picked up one of the, one of the African-American players' phones to see what he was texting during a team meeting? And just read it out loud and said, holy cow, and then realized he'd already, he's stuck spouting out the word. If you could get fired for that, could you also get fired for accusing someone of that? No one did it. It was no, you know, unjustly. You know, that's the problem when you accuse somebody of being a racist or you accuse somebody of being dishonest or you impugn somebody's character, they'll never get it back. It's sort of like you just busted open a a pillow of feathers that and throw them in the wind and said, now you go get my reputation back after you destroy me. You accuse me of a crime. And at the end of the day, I would bet you that Dawn Staley knew damn well it didn't happen anyway. But she was posturing for her Whoopi Goldbergs and her, and her dang old uh, Alan Alders and Barbara Streisands and everything. But, you know, we got to sit there. Did you see who Biden appointed to be the monkeypox director for monkeypox? Did you, did you see him? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, 
Twitter, we can sit there and say, hey, let's use some – I mean, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And, yeah, I'll tell you, you know, they, what they want to do is scare and intimidate people. Well, if, you know, you know, and they throw all of these names at us as which they are. You know, and every time somebody like a Biden or somebody throws up a January 6th, we need to sit there and laugh at them and throw back at them 254 daggone insurrectionist acts committed by the daggone uh, paramilitary wing of the fascist Democrat Party riding all over the country. I'm going, supposed to go downtown Charleston tonight to go have dinner. My, my brother invited me. And you know what? I'm actually worried about going downtown Charleston because I know you got a, a, a fascist Democrat mayor down there. And I know that there's a, that the policemen are hamstrung and can't do anything. And literally going out to eat dinner downtown Charleston on a Friday, Saturday night, you're taking your life into your hands. And it's about the damn same thing as downtown Columbia. I mean, and Florence, for that matter. But no, good Lord, don't say nothing because you don't want to get called some bad name or whatever. But I'm telling you, man, if, if, if we shut up now, you know, I'll tell you the honest to God truth, but right after uh, they stole the election, which they did, you know, I was sitting there and said, oh, my God, they're going to come after us. We need to be careful. We need to watch what we say, blah, 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 blah. And that's exactly what they want. They want us to watch what we say, and we can't watch what we say. we got to sit there and call and call it, call it like it is. Because, you know, the, the bottom line is, that person may who knows what's going to happen to that person, even though they didn't do a damn thing. And it's becoming more and more apparent that the person that was accused of the racial thing didn't do a damn thing. Yeah, nobody's that stupid. Why? Are you going to go to a Carolina game in two weeks and start screaming racial, racial slurs? That'd be pretty damn stupid, wouldn't it? Thank, if you felt that way. Thank you, Breeze. I, I said it yesterday, and I'll stick to this. Somebody challenged me on this yesterday. If the events didn't happen, I mean, if there's no corroborating or verifiable evidence that the BYU student or fan said what's been reported they said, and the Duke player made it up, I mean, I don't know that, but I'm saying if we get there, I mean, if, we get, if, if there's an investigation and it's concluded and we find out it never happened, I would fire Don Staley and I would fire Ray Tanner. I mean, I think those are fireable offenses. I think it's that egregious. Somebody, as Bree said, somebody's got to stop this nonsense. Somebody's got to hold. I mean, everybody who's not woke and politically correct are being held accountable, right? I mean, where are the January 6th insurrectionists at, right? I mean, the rioters. How many rioters have been in jail for two years? I mean, there was no insurrection, not armed, but, but those folks are in jail. I mean, they, they're facing real stiff penalties. We got a guy in Texas that is going to be disallowed to ever run for office again. I mean, he's an office holder. Uh, he wasn't found. He wasn't found a guilty of insurrection. But but once again, if there there are always going to be two sets of rules if we allow there to be two sets of rules. And right now in America, there's a set of rules for people who are woke and politically correct, and those who aren't. And I think we've got to demand that the rules apply to both. And if that event never happened, and the University of South Carolina canceled a basketball game, who's responsible for canceling that basketball game? It's the basketball coach or the athletics director. And I think if we find out it didn't happen, but we canceled a game, I mean, it's the embarrassment of all sports, whether it's, it doesn't matter if it's women's basketball. I mean, this is not about women's basketball. This is about equality and diversity and inclusion and, and race, critical race theory and higher education. I mean, there's so many things at play. This story has so many tentacles. We, we tend to look at it as a women's basketball issue. 
It is anything but a women's basketball issue. It, it is an accounting of our social consciousness. And what are we going to allow to happen or not? If a, if a white male football coach had taken that action and we found out that what he said was untrue and dishonest, something would there, there would be consequences there. I'm not saying there'd be a termination. There'd be a suspension. But, but I think you've got to, I mean, I, I'm not saying fight fire with fire, but, but there can't be a set of rules for those, who, for those who are woke and politically correct and those who aren't. Take a break. Back in a minute. When the members of the General Assembly get here this morning, I'm sure we'll talk about abortion. The Senate met late, late yesterday, into the night. Um, I actually text with a Democrat member of the House about where they were. Um, obviously, he's in the minority. He doesn't have a lot of yank in how this uh, process goes. But I want to get an update on uh, since uh, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision. I mean, I guess the modern uh, abortion debate will be about Dobbs instead of Roe v. Wade. Um, from what I'm gathering, and this concerns me a good bit, um, I mean, I said before, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, the one question I posed is, uh, would the Republicans be able to take yes for an answer? It appears no. They're not able to take yes as an answer because there are some Republicans, and I understand protecting the unborn. I mean, I get all that, but, but I think the politics uh, of, the, of the moment require us to be a little bit measured. And from what I'm gathering, there's a deep divide in the GOP between rape, incest, life of the mother. And I think you're going to have a hard time convincing the average South Carolinian that a 14-year-old who was raped by a drug dealer has to carry that baby to term. I mean, we can politic until the cows come home. But, but the practical reality is the real world is out there. And the real world gets messy at times. And as part of that mess, I get caught up in it. You get caught up in it. We all get caught up in it. And, and I have this, I mean, I have this perfect belief in protecting the unborn, but I have this practical and political reality that I have to kind of check at the door. And, and I'm concerned, and it appears to me that there are some holdouts on the GOP side that are going to require. I mean, once again, Rev, you can, you can argue the point the way you want to argue it, if you're for or against, but, but. For the law to require a 14-year-old who has been raped by a drug dealer to carry that baby to term is something that I don't want any part of. I mean, I just don't. Is that promoting abortion? I guess if you want to be uh, pure as, you know, driven whites, no, it is. But we'll see what the, um, I mean, I know Philip actually texted me yesterday and said he couldn't be here this morning. Uh, I think Jay will be here a bit later than 8. And I think I've not heard from Mike, but Mike and I text a little bit yesterday we'll see how that debate transpires but but i want to go back to this real quick i don't want to spend a lot of time talking about abortion until they get here and i do want to say at about seven thirty-five ish drew mckissick chairman of the uh, south carolina gop um reached out to me yesterday and asked could he call in at about seven they they've got something on their mind they want to tell uh, talk to our listeners about so we shall see uh what that is i think i know what it is but we'll let him um discuss at length what it is he wants to update uh largely republican primary voting audience let's go back to roe v wade and the dobbs decision so now that we have overturned roe v wade what is the next bad decision the united states supreme court should overturn the american spectator a highly respected conservative news outlet and i mean this sincerely i mean to me it is the most reputable there is today it is kind of like the weekly standard and national review of days gone by i mean the weekly standard national review 
well, it was a, I mean, it was pro-globalism, pro-interventionism. I mean, it was a, um, uh, a magazine that advocated for China being allowed to the WTO. So they were wrong with a lot of these. Well, I mean, if you're an America firster, they were wrong. If you're a globalist Republican uh, or an interventionist Republican, you'd probably still hang your hat on what the National Review and Weekly Standards say. But the American conservative has a lot of cutting-edge writers, a lot of um, uh, respected members of the new right, some of the intellectual architects of the new right, some of the thinkers of the new right. And um, and they did an article, Jeremy Carl's a guy that writes for the American conservative, and he would be a Peter Thiel acolyte. I mean, I don't know the relationship he has with Thiel, but it sounds to me, and I've read some things he's written, it seems to me that Jeremy Carl is very much in agreement with Thiel about China, about immigration, about trade, about China. Um, but Carl wrote an article yesterday that was very interesting. Um and I want to read it verbatim to give him proper credit. This is a conversation we've had for about three or four years. It's a little bit, I mean, it, it makes you feel good about what you do in the morning when you see one of the opinion leaders and I'd, what I'd call the new right intelligentsia um, say things that we've said for about three or four or five years. So here you go. You ready? Mm-hmm. Overturning Roe seemed like a pipe dream until it finally happened. Now that the worst legal pre- precedent is gone, we've asked the American conservative contributors which bad decision should the U.S. Supreme Court overturn next? Few Supreme Court cases are so little known by the public, yet so damaging in effect as Griggs versus Duke Power. Hmm. Well. 1971, when the idiosyncratic right-wing political scientist Richard Hanai uh, recently mentioned the case on Twitter, hmm, liberal pundit Max Iglesias admitted he'd never heard of it. Yet Griggs was arguably the first important example of the principles of critical race theory and government policy, and as such has had a uniquely deleterious effect on American life. They've got to prove they're a little bit uh, intelligent here with some of the um, some of the expanded vocabulary of some of these writers. Um, Griggs introduced the concept of disparate a uh, disparate income impact into U.S. law. Now, a process that had an outcome that varied by race could potentially be illegal even if no racial discrimination was intended. Remember that. Let me read that again. Griggs introduced the concept of disparate impact into U.S. law, now a process that had an outcome that varied by race. I mean, that's kind of an interesting. I mean, listen to what he says there now. An outcome that varied by race could potentially be illegal, even if it had no racial discrimination intent. That's what Griggs did. It made racial something that was never intended to be racial. Um, now, now, I've learned a little bit more about Griggs, something I didn't know. It was not just an IQ test. It included a mechanical aptitude part. People are mechanically inclined. They may not be that good at math. They may not be that good at writing or reading, but they're mechan- mechanically inclined. My father would have been that. My father was not a highly educated man. My dad could make anything work. I mean, I've told you the stories. Um, I'll give you a real quick story. Santee Cooper was a big customer of ours. Santee Cooper was having problem with stumps and logs washing up into the dam. So they came to my dad and they said, we've got a team of engineers that are going to design, you know, this, um, this, this arm, this articulating arm to reach out and grab the stumps. We need to mount it on a truck. Can you help us mount this? I mean, we already designed the articulating arm, uh, kind of a boom. 
uh, that'll reach out and grab the stumps, grab the crane, I mean, grab the roots and all these other uh, limbs and whatnot, get it out of the um. So the hydroelectric plant can work as intended. My dad looked at it for about six minutes with three engineers, three highly educated engineers. My dad said in 10 minutes, it'll turn over. What do you mean it'll turn over? We've done all the measurements. We've done all the analytics. We've done We've done all the engineering. We know what we're talking about. My dad said, you didn't account for the pressure in the tires. I mean, the tires have give in them. The, those tires aren't, they're, they're not metal. They're, they're not a hard surface. So when you put pressure on that tire, the, the tire that was 19 and a half inches tall is going to be 17 inches tall. Well, you take that two inch and, and on a 20 foot reach, I mean, my dad had no formal education at all in engineering. Well, they insisted we build it as, you know, they engineered it. And we did. About three months later, a wrecker shows up with a torn up truck and body. Mm-hmm. It had turned over. And I've, just, I've never forgotten that. And my dad didn't wow. say, told you so. He said, it's going to cost you to get it fixed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I mean, as much as it costs us to build it, it's going to cost us twice as much to get that fixed. So when you, when you look at the Duke Power case, it was not just IQ. There was also a mechanical aptitude part um, that was intended to make it worker, easier for workers to, I don't know, Rev, earn transfers to more attractive positions within the company. And that's where the Griggs case came in. The civil rights legislation of 1964 um, gave the lawyers the argument to say that this is discriminatory. This can't, this can't be the case. There was never any racial intent or discriminatory intent with Griggs versus um, Duke, or excuse me, with the aptitude and mechanical test. And I didn't know there was a mechanical part of this. I mean, I, I had no idea, but as I've read, and I actually talked to somebody who worked with the old CP&L, remember Carolina Power and Light Company? Sure. Uh, they said, Ken, I think there was a mechanical part to that test. Um, so, yeah, you had an IQ test, but in conjunction with kind of a, um, a mechanical. And some people are just good at, I mean, you know this, some people are just good at figuring mm-hmm. things out. They're not highly educated, but they can look at something, visualize, okay, this will give us trouble, this won't. And that, that was kind of, I mean, my dad comes to mind when I think of those kinds of people. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, talking about this, I, I know you want to wait, but a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the abortion situation, and I told you then that they had to define what an abortion was. And now they're talking about a topic pregnancy. They took all that out of the bill. You know, that's stupid. That's not an abortion. They have to say this is not an abortion. When a, a embryo is created in the fallopian tube, that will kill the mother because it cannot grow. It'll explode in that instead of in the uterus. So I don't know what these people's game plan is, but they have the RU-485 or whatever it is that morning after pill. There should never be a pregnancy after a rape or an incest. People just have to say, I was raped or my cousin raped me or whatever and take that pill. So the argument of rape and incest should be a moot point because, you know, you're you're not allowing the egg to fertilize so you don't have a life there. Now, if you make recommendations for rape and incest, then you need, if you're going to destroy that life, which is murder, you need to make rape and incest a death penalty offense because the person that did the raping, why should he live and this child 
be murdered. That's my only point. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. There was an attempt yesterday. I made my mind up where we're going to wait on this for an hour or so, but there was an attempt yesterday um, to vote cloture on Tom Davis. Tom Davis, a senator from Buford, um, so they could vote on the House bill. The Senate's trying to get the House bill to the floor. They couldn't. Uh, they needed 26 votes to get cloture, got 24 uh, to basically sit Tom Davis down and in debate on that particular bill. Um, six Republicans, I think it's six, five or six, have defected uh, because they think the band, even with the exceptions, is too strict. Um, it seems to me, and I'm playing a little bit of um, from afar, I mean, I'm not in the chamber, not watching some of the personalities interact with one another. It seems to me that we'll end up with a maybe a little cleaner heartbeat bill, um, lower the exception time frame from maybe 20 to 10 or 12 weeks. I mean, that kind of seems to me like where we're, where we're headed. I mean, the majority of infighting is when within the Republican Party. Now, there was a striking bill or striking um, and kind of a markup bill yesterday, what they call a um, strike and insert. And I've got some of the language of the bill. Somebody sent it to me last night at about 1030. I mean, I was already in the bed asleep, woke up with a screenshot of the um, strike and insert language. I think Massey and Embry, uh, Massey from Edgefield. Yeah, I think so. Shane's from Edgefield and Greg's from Horry County. And they were the ones um, proposing some of the following amendments uh, that would be strike and insert, and I'll show Rev here. You can see where some of the language is stricken, oh. and some of it's been inserted. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of um, I mean, it's making sausage. That's the way. It, I mean, that's the way the sausage is made. And um, there was a day I was real familiar because I was in the room when some of the strike and insert was being done, and some of the defections were being talked about. Uh, I'm not there anymore, so I'm not as intimately close to that situation. But it looks to me like we're trying to get to a place of maybe a little cleaner and more streamlined heartbeat bill with maybe that, you know, the weeks going from 20 to 10 or 12 weeks. We'll find out when I'm Jay and Mike get here, uh, or we'll find out as much as they're willing to divulge uh, to the general public right now. Some of these negotiations behind the scenes, um, nah, they need to remain private. You know, some of the, um, I say the deal-making, some of the conversations that senators have with one another about some of the um, some of the hang-up, hold-up problems they have with Bill X, Y, or Z. I mean, we're going to get a cleaner, neater abortion bill. There's no doubt about it. Roe v. Wade does no longer tie the hands of General Assemblies all over the state. Um, and, and South Carolina is a conservative state, but there's still some dissension within the Republican Party. Um, you can't have it both ways. You can't save every baby ever or every unborn. You, you can't, you know, every... Well, I mean, I, to me, it's a baby. To some, it's not. To me, you know, k- killing the unborn is killing a human being. To some, it's not. Um, I'd like to say I respect that, but I kind of don't. Uh, you know, I, I guess I understand the political positioning and posturing of some on the left. Um, you know, the, to me, the argument's always been, and this is where I get real introspectively confused, I believe life begins at conception. I'm just not sure I understand exactly when conception is. I mean, it's conception... The, the, the second fertilization is conception, you know, three hours later. Is it a, a day and four hours and 19 minutes later? Here's a good question. Is the morning after pill an abortion? I mean, I don't know. You know, are all conceptions exactly the same? Don't know. I'm, I'm not a, a gynecologist. I'm not a, you know, some sort of doctor in that field of expertise. I don't understand. Um, does every pregnancy happen exactly the same time? 
Uh, a man and a woman have sex. The, the, the sperm of the egg, you know, I mean, the fertilizer. I, I, w- w- at what point in time does conception happen? And I, I, I've never fully understood that. I mean, I've seen a lot of, um, I've read some things to say, you know, from 15 minutes to five days. Well, that's a pretty good variance, right? I mean, if it's, if it's mm-hmm. 15 minutes and you take the morning after, I mean, you're exterminating the beginning of life. If it's a day in 15 minutes and you take the morning after, you're not exterminating human life, right? I mean, the, the fertilizing event has not happened yet. Um, but, but once again, that, that gets in the weeds. And I think that's a fair, a fair debate to have within. But, but when you assume a responsibility as a member of an elected you know, political body, th- th- there's a politic you have to play. I mean, you, you're responsible for voting on bills and um, – and figuring out a way to, to kind of balance your personal opinions, your personal dispositions with, with what your political party, what, what the state, what the voters, what the, the nation. I mean, where, where's the heart and sentiment of the American people on abortion? I mean, it's deeply divided. I mean, the polls clearly show that. Americans are, are, are very understanding of uh, abortion early, early, early in a pregnancy. Rape, incest, life of the mother, overwhelmingly supported by the American people. I mean, it's not your job to do exactly what you think needs to be done. It's your job to do what you think needs to be done in concert with the will of the people. Isn't that kind of what we got aggravated with Tom Ross about? I mean, he felt it was his job to vote the way he felt, not the way his people felt about the so-called insurrection. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. We have with us on the phone, if I'm not mistaken, Republican candidate for superintendent of education, Ellen Weaver. Ellen, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Ken. How you doing? We are doing well. Glad that you're up and early and soliciting supporters for your campaign for superintendent of education. I want to say something. I want to get your take on this. So, okay. so I am a believer in education. I'm a believer in K through 12, public education, higher education. I'm just one that believes it needs radical reform. I mean, we can't nip around the edges. We can't, we can't educate kids today like we have for the past 40 or 50 years it's kind of a that there's a there's a, a newness that that has found a lot of resistance within some of the um educational um cartels i'll say and um that's kind of a, a word of choice by in purpose only um but but no ellen from your perspective as a republican candidate understanding that republican voters now are looking for i don't know office holders to do things do you agree yeah. with that premise and what do you hope to change about the education system in South Carolina, if given the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely, Ken. I think you framed that up perfectly. There is um, an entity that I lovingly call the education empire. I think you called it the education cartel. Um, and, and the fact is, is that is that there are just business models that have been built on the old way of doing business. And that's why it is so hard to change. There is so much power and money tied up inside this system Um, People ask me all the time, you know, are we underfunding education in South Carolina? And I have to say, no, we are not underfunding education. We are misfunding education. We have so much money that is tied up in bureaucracy and in the programs of the past. And so to your point, we have got to have a complete reorientation about how we think about education and the education ecosystem here in South Carolina. You know, um, we've talked about it before. I'm a huge fan of education choice. 
That means excellent public schools. It means public charter schools. It means scholarships for families who can't afford it to go to private schools, homeschooling. I mean, we need a robust system of competitive choices that gives parents options for their child to get them into the right environment for them, but that also supports a marketplace for teacher talent. You know, I talk to teachers all the time, and they are so frustrated by their own lack of choices, by the cultural decline um, of respect that they have seen within the traditional education system. And I think if we could open up a marketplace for their talent, we could absolutely revolutionize education. But that means restructuring how we how we fund education and, and really changing changing the paradigm of how we think about public education. To me, Ken, public education means an educated public, however they get that education, wherever they learn best. And so as superintendent of education, I'm going to support for excellence in our public schools, I am going to push to get money out of old, outdated programs and bureaucracy and push it back down into the classroom where it can support the students and the teachers it was actually intended to support. Ellen, I spent a little time in Columbia. I realize the influence the General Assembly has. You will have to find friendlies within that body, both House and Senate. Uh, have you spoken to those? Do, 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 do there seem to be a willingness to engage a superintendent of education as an advocate for change via the General Assembly? Oh, I can't tell you how hungry the General Assembly is for someone who's willing to step up and provide an education and lead boldly. Um, you know, governing by committee is always a difficult thing, and that's essentially what we do in the General Assembly. We have, you know, 170-some members up there who are, you know, each have a vote and an opinion about how things need to be done. And I think the job of the superintendent is really to serve as the quarterback of, of that team, to get up every morning and say, what are we doing to move the ball down the field for education in South Carolina today, and then to go out to your point and build the team of leaders in the General Assembly that it's going to take to actually get something done. I mean, we've been talking about the same problems in education over and over and over again for the last decade. It is clear that the status quo way of doing business is not up to the challenge, and it's going to take significant reform. And so, you know, I've spent the last decade of my life working with members of the General Assembly, working with the governor, building those trusted relationships that it's going to take for us to get on the same page and to actually march that ball down the field. Ellen, one of my soapboxes, I'll leave K-12 through for a second, one of my soapboxes has been the, the enormous amount of student debt this nation's accumulated, $1.7 trillion. I mean, there's a forgiveness that I call a transference of debt to the tune of somewhere yep. around $300 billion. But if you dig into some of the income repayment uh, income direct repayments, it gets to about $1.2 trillion. I mean, this is a, I mean, to, to me, it's a travesty that we've allowed this debate to even take place. But here we are in America. And um, are, are there opinions you wish to espouse in relation to higher education, the current model that allows kids to borrow enormous amounts of money that maybe they pay back, maybe they don't, but the American taxpayer is basically the guarantor on behalf of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I call this whole loan, quote unquote, forgiveness program, the Biden boondoggle, because the fact is, is that is that, that co the cost of higher education has far outpaced um, inflation growth. Um, and and it, it, it's just there's no excuse for it. But we know that when the federal government gets involved in a market and subsidizes things, it's 
subsidizes things, it distorts the market. So we've seen, you know, colleges that have absolutely no incentive to control costs go out and spend wildly on projects that really have nothing to do with actually delivering education and is much more about entertainment and college culture. And it's subsidized, as you said, on the backs of the American taxpayer. Um, it also frustrates me to no end that, you know, we basically have sold parents and students a bill of goods that you can't be a success if you don't go into debt and go to a four-year college. That is simply not true. Um, you know, in my own life, I, my, my path to success was a four-year college degree. I got a great education, um, and I'm so thankful for that degree that I got. I've used it every single day of my professional career. But you look at my brother, on the other hand. He got a GED and went into the military. And, Ken, I'm here to tell you, he's making more money than I am now. Uh, so he, you know, has found a successful path in his own life different than mine, and I think we have got to equip students with the foundational skills that they need, reading, math, science, and history, real history, and um, and then and then set them loose on the journey that works for them. That could be a four-year college. That could be a two-year trade program. That could be going into the military. Whatever their path to success is, we need to celebrate and support it. Ellen, last question. South Carolina is a red state, no doubt about it. I mean, if you're running for a constitutional office as a Republican, you're the odds-on favorite. But the superintendent of education has always been unique. The reason it's unique, I call it the education cartel. You call it the educational empire. But they engage. I mean, they are a force du jour when it comes to this race in this state. And they're going to do everything in their power to resist you getting elected, bringing about some of the necessary change. So, yeah, it's good old red South Carolina, but your race is unique. Explain that to our listeners and why it's so important to show up in November. Absolutely. I mean, I need every conservative Republican in South Carolina. If you care about the future of America, if you care about the future of this state, the economy of this state, you have got to get out and vote because you're right, Ken. Um, there is a, a monolithic block out there um, of, of the education establishment that fights change tooth and nail um, at every step of the way. And, and I'm just going to tell you, my opponent in November, um, you know, will try to position herself as, you know, a moderate classroom teacher. The fact is she has ties to the radical left. She um, advocates for unions in South Carolina. She led a walkout, you know, essentially a, a strike um, from the classroom two years ago. And her vision for South Carolina is in radical opposition. I mean, it is the Biden, Randy Weingarten vision of education. She was fighting to keep our classrooms closed. She was fighting to keep our kids in masks. Um, and she opposes giving parents options um, when it comes to the schooling of their children. So the, the, the contrast between my opponent and I could not be any starker. And um, it's going to be imperative that our voters get out on November 8th and not just our voters, that they take friends with them and explain the stark contrast that they're going to have to vote for in this race. Ellen, if somebody in this area wants to be a volunteer, a supporter, put yard signs out, knock on doors, how can they find out more about assisting your campaign? That's a fantastic question. Please visit ellenforeducation.com. Uh, my grassroots director is Patton Byers. You can reach him at Patton, that's P-A-T-T-O-N, at ellenforeducation.com. Ellen, thank you for your time. Have a great day. I'm sure we'll talk between now and um, in early November. 
Sounds great. Thanks, Ken. Happy Friday. Thank you very much. Same to you. Ellen Weaver, candidate for superintendent of education, Republican nominee for superintendent of education. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Um, this is an important race. I mean, we've, we've got a chance in South Carolina to put someone somewhat disruptive in an office that I think is more critical than any other office in our state. I mean, we are a legislatively dominated state. The, the governor matters. The lieutenant governor matters. The superintendent of education matters more. Trust me. I mean, it, it really and truly is. The, the governor I mean, has got a mansion, and they do the ribbon cuttings, and, you know, they're, they're kind of the CEO of the state. But, but you got to trust me on this. The superintendent of education, if singing off the same shitty music as the General Assembly, can bring about monumental change to a deeply flawed education system in South Carolina. And, and you know, why, why do we continue to accept being 47, 48, 49 in the country? I have no idea. But we're doing things in, in the most antiquated way imaginable. We're not allowing competitiveness to enter into the realm of public education, um, and we must. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to take some visionary um, sort of people. And Ellen's a, um, I mean, Ellen's a, a political disruptor. I mean, she's, um, she ain't Donald Trump, but who is? You know what I mean? But she brings about a very new set of ideals, a new set of beliefs, a new set of perspectives. Um, cut her teeth with Jim DeMint. So, you know, the conservative bona fides are very much in place there. But, um, I mean, I, for one, am a big, big supporter of Ellen Weaver in this race because I think she has what it takes to convince the General Assembly and some of the other, you know, office holders and, and, and personalities that need to be involved if we are to fundamentally change the direction of education in South Carolina. And it certainly, certainly needs that. Um, I want to shift gears and go back real quick. Um, we got a lot of things going on this hour. Got an honor of vet at about 740. We've got the state chairman of the uh, Republican Party, Drew McKissick scheduled to call in somewhere around 7.30. I'm trying to move that up a little bit to maybe 7.25-ish, but I hadn't had a response back yet. But um, we'll see how that works out. Schedule somewhere around 7.30 is Drew McKissick, honor of vet, then our delegation or the members that can be here in the 8 o'clock hour. And once again, um, in the name of beginning the weekend a little bit earlier than normal, the 9 o'clock hour on Friday is set aside for whatever you choose to make it about. Now, last week, we, we kind of kept it on politics. Mm -hmm. For some reason, the political conversation continued. But as Rush Limbaugh had a free-for-all Friday, I guess we can pay respect to Rush in this fashion. Um, our last hour of the week is about anything you want it to be about. And, uh, and I want to reiterate, someone said I'm tired of it about women's basketball. The Don Staley situation is not about women's basketball. It's about wokeness and political correctness and, you know, uh, the two sets of rules. I mean, if someone is accused of being unwoke and politically incorrect, there's a set of rules. I mean, like Bree said, and, and I'm telling you guys, um, I get where, where somebody like Ray Tanner is. I mean, you know, Tanner probably has, I mean, Tanner's an old school baseball coach. He probably has a matter of fact disposition, but you can't be labeled a racist in today's world or you're done. I mean, you're done. And I can tell you, from reading some of the um, responses from the general public on some of the articles I read about, you know, Staley's decision, I think the decision, if we find out that there was no um, situation, there was no racial slur yelled or screamed at, a, at an African-American Duke volleyball player, I think it's unforgivable what she's done. I think it's indefensible what she's done. Um, but, but once again, we live in this woke, politically correct culture that doesn't want to face the facts. They don't want to deal with the truth. Now, a lot of the, you know, so, some of these um, 
the ESG and the DEI, it's not based on truth. It's based on emotions. How do I feel about equity? How do I feel about diversity? How do I feel about inclusion? Well, the facts, I don't know what the facts say. Stop with the facts. I mean, I know how I feel <laughs> about being woke or not. I know how I feel about being don't politically correct. with facts. Yeah, I mean, let's not let facts get in the way of a good emotional feeling. You know, let's do the Vulcan. Uh, you see where I'm headed, Rev? I mean, you know, it's absurd. I mean, we, we've gotten ourselves in the twilight zone when it comes to these sorts of things. I want to say this. I, I was thinking about this as kind of get ready for, for next week's shows, and i got a weird theme for next week. Um, there are people who believe that we are at the precipice of our demise. I, I'd be one of those. There are others who believe, no, I mean, we've got some issues, but everything's going to be okay because we're the good old U.S. of A, and the good old U.S. of A will always be we okay. We always figure out yeah, We always figure it out some way, somehow. You know, I'm reading a lot, and I guess the dark enlighteners and the cathedral kind of led me down this, um, <laughs> this long and winding road. <laughs> um, but I'm reading now, Rev, and here's where I've landed. The brightest minds are not allowed in the mainstream. I'm convinced of this. I mean, the most effective voices, the brightest minds, the best thinkers are not allowed in the political mainstream. They're not sunshine pumpers. They're not pimps or prostitutes. They're not going to tell you everything's okay because they don't think everything's okay. But the guy that says everything's not going to be okay can't be on CNBC because CNBC is betting on everything being okay. I mean, I think Jamie Dimon is plenty smart, but I think he's a sunshine pumper, pimp, and a prostitute. I mean, I think these guys are in, un- I mean, I think, yeah, I think Jamie, okay, let's use him as an example. Jamie Dimon is a very competent banker. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, he's a, I think a Harvard MBA guy, um, runs a big bank, uh, has successfully navigated some of the complexities of TARP and uh, the modern economy. So, I mean, I think he's very, very talented, but, but I think he's made a, a kind of a, a decision. I'm going to be one of them. And then you've got some of these others who, I don't know whether it's, um, I've got more moral integrity or, uh, you know, a, a better moral. I don't, I don't have any idea what makes some of these guys go that way, and some of them don't. But I'm listening and reading and learning from these folks who aren't allowed to be included in the political debate as it relates to the mainstream. You're not going to see uh, Bill Donner on, uh, Bill Bonner, I'm sorry, Bill Bonner. You're not going to see Bill Bonner on CNBC because Bill Bonner's a billionaire who says, no, everything's, of course, of course everything's not right. Bill Bonner believes he's a he's a gazillionaire, running hedge funds, blah 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 blah. But he you know, he got a house in Ireland, and I mean he'll tell you in a minute, I'm gonna be okay. I mean I've got about six and a half billion dollars. I've got a home in Ireland, home in England, home in Vale, home in Aspen, home in you know Naples, home in wherever you know, home wherever I want one uh, because he can afford to have a home wherever he wants one. But he believes that our energy policy and our reluctance to deal with our debt is going to speed up our demise by half century. Wow. I mean, that, it's, it's pretty bizarre. Now, once again, he's not a sunshine pumper. He's Obviously. not a pimp. He's not a prostitute. But he's as bright as anybody. And if he agreed to do that, he'd be on CNBC every day. He'd be on Fox News every night. He'd be on CNN every morning. But he's not that guy. But he believes that our lack of a coherent energy policy and our unwillingness to deal with our federal debt has sped up our eventual demise by not five or ten years, but 50 years. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here is Marty in Florence. Morning, Marty. Good morning, guys. How are y'all? Hey, Marty. Good morning. Yes, hey, sir. Uh, Ken, we you've been typing, trying to get in all week since you've been talking on this student 
loan forgiveness. Is there any stipulations to this whatsoever? Well, I mean, if someone finds standing and take it to court, I don't think it'll hold, but it's going to be hard finding standing. Well, what I'm getting at, how about for me, I, I didn't go to college, but had I went to college, I figured I'd have probably spent four years up there doing what you said, drinking beer, smoking dope, chasing. No, you wouldn't. You, you just spent a summer and a semester about like I did. You can't <laughs> well, do what I did in the last four years. Okay. But how about these people that went for four years and didn't get a degree? Do we still have to pay that back? Yeah. I mean, I mean pay it. yeah, they're, they're not categorizing the debt. Thank you, Marty. Appreciate that. They're not categorizing the debt. In fact, 40% of all the debt accumulated has been with those who didn't graduate college. So Marty's exactly right. I mean, you know, um, you borrow money to go to college, you don't graduate, you don't have a degree, you made a bad investment, but 40% of that debt is still on the books and we've got to deal with it some way, somehow. So, um, I mean, th this is the, to me, it should be the political gift that keeps on giving. And, and while the Republicans, and this is why I get real frustrated with my party, the Republican Party, not, not an individual Republican, but, but the body politic, I mean, the, the Republican Party has failed to clearly articulate an option to the, to the, uh, the out-of-control cost of college and the reason we've allowed all these kids to borrow all this money. But, Martin, to your point, um, it's not, there's not a category of debt for somebody graduating. The category of debt is someone who didn't graduate. We're not going to pay off the debt for those who didn't graduate, but we are going to pay off the debt for those that did. I mean, the debt is the debt is the debt. And... Um, and your tax dollars will go to basically, I mean, it's not a forgiveness. we got to stop calling it a debt forgiveness. It is a debt transference. And whether you graduated or not, your debt will be transferred um, to, to basically the general ledger of the American government, the federal government, that being, you know, we, the people. Is there another call? Ben in Florence. Okay. Hello, Ben. Let's go to Ben. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Hey, Ben, how are you? Yeah, well, this is... Uh crazy Friday because I just have two comments. Both of them are probably make no sense, but that's okay. Um, so th the first one is, again, this the energy and the gas prices, you know, they've come down and I really appreciate that. That's great, even though I don't drive very much anymore, thank goodness. Uh, but from a business perspective, uh, can you tell me, like, okay, we got Exxon, you know, we got BP, we got all these big boys. And their cost of doing business cannot be exactly the same. I mean, it just can't. But, you know, if you go to four gas stations on the corner and they're all different gas stations, they're all the same price. How can that be? Uh, I, I just, that, that's always uh, befuddled me. Uh, so if you can comment on that, Ken, I, I would appreciate it. And then the other one, Ken, is probably more important to me is, how can we blame the mega Republicans and Donald Trump for the additional shark attacks and sightings off the South Carolina coast? <laughs> if you can tell me that, I would appreciate it. Gentlemen, I hope you have a fantastic Well, if, if, I, if I were, thank you for the call, appreciate it. If I were a Democrat, I would certainly blame the shark attacks mm -hmm. along you know, you know, America's coastline on uh, the mega Republicans. They're the easy target. I mean, they're the political disruptor. Anytime you're Johnny come lately to the political world, you're not as entrenched. You're not as established. I mean, you're going to take some pot shots. That's just the nature 
of American politics. But but I, I want to articulate it. I think I've done a decent job of this, Rev. You can correct me if I'm wrong. The, the MAGA Republican is not a far-right Republican. I mean, it's a new-right Republican, but it's a weird consolidation of a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life. If someone said, what's the common ingredient disenfranchisement? I mean, I feel like the MAGA Republican feels like either political party has kind of disenfranchised I feel like there's them. far-right people, moderate people, uh, center-left people that are MAGA. It is without question a nationalist movement. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It centers on kind of national sovereignty and national safety and security. Um, you know, I, I, I listen a lot to what Peter Thiel says, and I'm not a Thiel, a Thiel acolyte. I mean, I, you know, Thiel's a little bit scary. Um, the New York Times called him the smartest scary man in America. And that's kind of the ultimate compliment coming from the New York Times. But but I think if the Republican Party refuses to accept and embrace some of Tealism, some of this anti-interventionist, some of this anti-globalist, anti-China, who was president of the United States when China became a member of the World Trade Organization? I mean, it was George W. Bush. The Republican through the Bush era were very globalist, very interventionist, uh, dare I say, a little bit open border-ish. And I think a lot of American people felt bothered by those um, sorts of political proclivities. And and there was some resentment there. And, and I've always said this, and I'll say it again. The one miscalculation that both parties made, I mean, there's a duopoly. The miscalculation, the grave miscalculation that these two parties made was what to do with the human carnage when, when, when we basically deindustrialized the American middle class. I mean, we didn't, we didn't export the American middle class. But we exported a lot of wage growth, a lot of potential prosperity of the American middle class. And, and I think Bushism, if there's such a thing, I think Bushism was net negative for the Republican Party because it was globalist in nature, interventionist in nature. And I think the American people looked around one day and all of a sudden came to a kind of a stark reality of, hey, this globalism had been too good for me. I mean, it, it, there's a fair debate about globalism. There's a fair debate about interventionism, but we didn't have that debate. To me, there's not a fair debate about China becoming legitimate by entering the World Trade Organization. China is our geopolitical adversary, period. They are a more dangerous geopolitical adversary than the Soviet Union. I, I, some people say than the Soviet Union ever was. I don't know. I mean, when we had the nuclear arms race, I don't know how crucial that was. I don't think I understood politics. I've read about it, tried to better understand it. But moving forward, there is no doubt that China is a geopolitical adversary to be taken unbelievably serious. We can debate some of the interventionists. We can debate some of the globalist policies. But I don't think there's any debate to be had about China. And I'll tell you the one thing Donald Trump did. Donald Trump just didn't change the Republicans' party stance on China. He changed both parties' stance on China. The Democrats nor Republicans look at China today like they did before Donald Trump became president. Hey, we got a um we, we got an important Republican with us on the phone, if I'm not mistaken. SCGOP chairman Drew McKissick is with us on the phone. Drew, good morning. How are you? Sure. Good morning, good morning. I tell you, for a good old boy, uh country boy from Pamplico, you're pretty smart. Well, I, I fake it for four hours every morning. You should see me when I'm not on the radio. <laughs> the, the stupid stuff well, I do. You, you, you're 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 exactly right though the, the big change that you've had and we saw back in 15 and 16 when donald trump first ran and the reason why he turned politics and especially on the republican side so upside down was because he began to talk about issues that the beltway crowd republican or democrat had ignored for the last 20 to 30 years and that was issues around trade and issues around immigration and it's why 
so many things could happen to him in that campaign and did that would normally just, you know, torpedo any normal campaign, and, and it did nothing. Uh, and he bested 16 other Republicans and uh, went on to win the nomination, win the, <clears throat> win the election. And you're exactly right. I mean, we've had more growth in our party since I've been chairman over the last five years because of those policies that he talked about. And I would say in a lot of ways, particularly in the PD, and you've seen it, you, know, sure. you live out that way. Uh, because of those issues. I mean, issues win campaigns. There's no doubt about it. Drew, and the one thing I think we're failing to understand, when you have this much confusion in a political party, when a political party is dealing with as much energy internally, you're not going to fix it in a year. I mean, this will take multiple election cycles for you and me and a lot of other Republicans to come to grips with how we get to a better place together. But that's the key, getting to a better place together. There's not enough non-Trump Republicans to win. There's not enough Trump Republicans to win. We've got to coalesce and agree on some fundamentals and principles that, that help us beat the Democrats. Absolutely. Look, politics, or at least electoral politics, as you know, is about math. It's about getting to 50 percent plus one. Losing is not a strategy. If you don't win, you can't make policy. So how do we come to grips with one another to put together a coalition that can actually win? You know, what issues are we going to coalesce around to be able to win? Uh, That's the essence of politics. That's the essence of successful politics anyway. We'll put it that way. Absolutely. Drew, uh, who is Crystal Matthews and why why should we care? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Crystal Matthews is a Democrat state house member from down in the Charleston area. Uh, has been for, I think, she's on her third term now. She is essentially a socialist uh, union organizer, uh, and she is also the Democrats' nominee for the United States Senate. Uh, a couple of months ago, she was caught uh, on uh, audio tape recording, uh, talking to someone in prison about how she can get the drug dealers' uh, money into her campaign, how she can avoid campaign finance regulations by having the straw donations made in someone else's name to her campaign. Uh, you know, and then she just basically said, well, she was misunderstood. This was taken out of context. Well, you know, Project Veritas, who, who did the recordings, dropped another one yesterday uh, with her uh, using some incendiary racist rhetoric, quite frankly, uh, uh, talking about how she treats white voters like crap. And that's not the word that she used uh, and keeps them under her thumb so they don't get out of control. Uh, and this is a woman who represents, you know, quite, uh, it's a borderline, uh, very borderline district, most targeted state house district in South Carolina for us right now. Uh, and, you know, again, over the line, racist rhetoric. Uh, you know, if you're a white voter in that district, I don't know how you would, you know, see someone like that and think, well, you know, hey, how can I go get uh, any services from this individual that, that I would need? Uh, if you're the Democrat Party right now, this is the person who is representing you in a statewide United States Senate race. You know, where do they stand on her rhetoric? Where do they stand on whether or not she ought to resign from her position, quite frankly? Uh, and, you know, it's a, it, it, it is a mess. And uh, she is the person that they had chosen to represent them statewide. Drew, is there anything we can do as Republicans who don't live? A, I mean, obviously, in a statewide race, we can all, you know, vote right. for the, uh, the yeah, Republican. Right. But in that particular district, are there, are there things that we can do despite not living there? Well, in terms of the state house district, win it back because she's running for both races at the same time, the state house seat and the U.S. Senate seat. Uh, obviously, supporting Tim Scott because she's his opponent in that race. In terms of the state house seat, a fellow by the name of Jordan Pace uh, is our nominee. That's House District One Seventeen. Jordan Pace. Uh, you can find him on Facebook. Find his website. Support him. Uh, bottom line is that's a targeted seat that we can take back, and I think we can legitimately pick up about five state house seats in this cycle, I believe, and that'll be you know, good for conservatives and uh, statewide. So we can send Jordan Pace a little money if we feel compelled. 
Absolutely, absolutely. House District 117, Jordan Pace. Find him on Facebook. You can find his website from there. Drew, thank you for your time, my man. Good to hear from you. Yes, sir. Take care. South Carolina Republican Chairman Drew McKissick with us this morning. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. This is our last, if I'm not mistaken, Honor of Vet segment of the year. Um, Van Irvin nominated his son, Sam Irvin. They're both with us. Good morning to Van. Good morning to Sam. Good morning. Sam, I'll start with you if you don't mind. You and I were talking during the break. So you've always had, I don't want to say an infatuation, but an interest in the military, even as a kid. Definitely. Yeah, growing up, it was a, a little thing I wanted to look forward to. All right, let's talk a little bit about your military career. So you follow that dream. Um, you become a member of the U.S. Marine Corps. You apply, I guess, for um, uh, detailed or patrol duties with the U.S. Presidential Helicopter Squadron. What exactly is the U.S. Presidential Helicopter Squadron? It's the Marine One, the white top helicopters, and then the green slick helicopters that just carry cargo and personnel. And My job was just basically security for them. Uh, everywhere we go, we had to secure the site, make sure nobody gets in or out, and nobody messes with the helicopter, even when it's on base. We had an extra secure facility inside Quantico. And there were how many of you? I mean, how many people are in that squadron? It's about 400 people, with 250 of them being security. And it's not just one helicopter, correct? I mean, there are multiple helicopters. There's I don't want to lot. call them dummy helicopters, but I mean, they're, they're, you, you like, want to make them guess which one the president's in. There's a lot of helicopters. And that would have been in what year? I was in there 2008 to uh, 2012. Sam, any interaction at all with the president? I mean, is one of 400 people assigned to that squadron? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you get close to the president? I mean, obviously your job is to keep him safe, to keep the helicopter safe, but is there ever any interaction with the first family? Yeah, so President Bush, whenever he went down to Waco, he would invite the Marines out, do runs with them, do his little bike. Uh, he called it the 100 because it was always hot. And then President Obama took over. He had a basketball court installed at Camp David. And he invited us at first to play with him on the basketball court. So just simple things like that. Uh, what would be one of the highlights? I mean, what what is one of the memorable experiences you had as part of the um the president? Any country, any place, any time period that you reflect on and said, "Wow, that was pretty cool to be a part of that," or pretty excited to be a part of that? Uh, flying through Hawaii in the white tops, that was great. Uh, flying around DC in the white tops because they'd follow the. When river. you say white tops, I mean you know what that means. I don't tell me what that means. The actual helicopter that the president flies in. Whenever we were just flying it around, whenever the pilots need to get training in, they would take us with them. Whenever the president wasn't in it. And just flying around D.C. in that helicopter, seeing all the sights from the air, which isn't a lot of people don't get to do that. That was pretty awesome. And then going to Australia was probably the one of my favorite trips, that in Korea. Okay, who decides when we take the helicopter and when we take the plane? I mean, how are those decisions? I mean, somebody's got to be in charge of all that. I mean, we, we, you know, I, I, honey, you drive the car and I'll drive the truck today. No, you take the uh, U.S. You take Air Force One. I'll take Marine One today. I mean, who makes those sorts of decisions? Well, you got to look at the distance. So he's taking Air Force One anywhere outside the Beltline, and then the helicopter always goes, whether it's being used to be transported or not. Like if he's planning to go somewhere by ground, the helicopter's still around just in case and i gotta believe the 400 of you don't say hey park the helicopter over here let's go to olive garden we'll check it back in the morning i mean somebody's got to be always on detail paying attention to whether someone uh you know gets access to the to the flying vessel yeah a lot of times we're just trying to stay incognito we don't want people to actually know we're there so we're hiding in a hangar until we're needed or hopefully we're not needed but Fully armed, fully equipped, fully able to protect whatever comes your way? Yeah, we stay armed everywhere we went. Van, when did you notice, because you can tell from Sam's demeanor, he was always interested in that sort of thing. As his father, when did you notice his interests may not be football or baseball or basketball, but rather uh, the military? High school when he joined the Air Force ROTC. And then um, in church, 
when the high school seniors get up and say where they're going to be going, each one was going to a college, and he spoke up, United States Marine Corps, the whole church. Said, <gasps> <laughs> he just always has been that way. Always, yes. Um, Sam, what, what do you attribute that to? I mean, was it just some, I don't know, something in your youth that led you down that road? I mean, w- w- what about you? I mean, most kids don't dream of going to the Marine Corps. You know, I mean, I'm seriously, I mean, they wake up one day and say, okay, option A, B, and C don't look too good. Here's this path forward. It seems to me that was always option A for you. Uh, I think just seeing it in popular culture, uh, Independence Day, those are Marine fighter pilots in that movie. It just excited me to see them, how you know, how cool they are in the movie. And then when you actually see the Marines in real life, when you actually meet them, it's, they're the best. And you were there how long? I was in the Marine Corps six years. Six years. And um, you've been out how long? I got out in 2012, so oh. 10 years now. Okay, so what about having been there for six years has equipped you for the life you're leading today. I mean, what about what, when, when these folks come in every week and I ask them, okay, um, you did it. What 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 made you do it? We've already got there. Um, what about doing it made you better? Um, definitely have a much better work ethic now. Uh, ownership's a big thing in the military. Owning up to whatever you do and then just learning different leadership styles, how to delegate, uh, decentralized command, how to execute, or I'm sorry, prioritize and execute. You know, different traits like that that I picked up along the way. But your entire military career sounds like it was centered around this presidential helicopter squadron. I mean, that that's pretty much it. I mean, that that's where you found um, satisfaction or happiness or personal gain, and you didn't want to explore anything else out there. This was something you enjoyed doing and wanted to be a part of. I did one year as PMO, which is just base military police. But when you go to the HMX unit, you have to get a top secret clearance. So they make you stay there for four years to get their money's worth on what it costs to get that top secret clearance. And Van, I mean, when he reports to you that he's now a member of the, make sure I get this right, the U.S. Presidential Helicopter Squadron, that's got to make you proud as a father. Very proud. And 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 just following up on that, um, his life after he goes to the Marines, a certain young man, he comes out a different kind of man. What have you noticed as his father different about him post being in the Marine Corps? Very, very honest, very um, just intense is what he's doing. He's been decorated several times since then in the job he's in now. Good deal. Well, thanks to both of you. Um, but but other than just saying thank you, I think we've got some gifts here, some sponsors. And um, and I'll let Rev tell you about the sponsors and the, the gifts we're going to provide. Absolutely. Pepsi of Florence, PD Electric Cooperative, and Florence Toyota are title sponsors for Honor Vet are providing a lot of prizes for you, including a prize bag, has a premiums in it like T-shirts, water bottles, things like that, courtesy of Pepsi, Tandem Health, and FTC. We also have gift cards. That are provided by Swipe Payment Solutions, Boykin Air Conditioning Services, Piggly Wiggly of Darlington and Hartsville, At Your Service Home Care, the 19th Green Indoor Golf Center, Heinz Furniture. Uh, We also have an oil change courtesy of Florence Toyota and a one-night stay at Hotel Florence in downtown Florence along with a $50 gift card for Victor's Steak, Wine, and Seafood, which is located in Hotel Florence downtown. Also want to mention all of our supporting sponsors that have made this program. This is our last honor event for uh, for this year, for this season. Again, our title sponsors, Pepsi of Florence, PD Electric Cooperative, and Florence Toyota, and all of our supporting sponsors that want to say thank you to our veterans, including FTC, Safe Federal Credit Union, Boykin Air Conditioning Services, At Your Service Home Care, Swipe Payment Solutions, Heinz Furniture, Stoudenmire Dowling Funeral Home, Tandem Health, Your CBD Store, Piggly Wiggly, Hotel Florence, the 19th Green Indoor Golf Center, and 
Victor's Restaurant. Yeah, and finally, I get to talk to someone who was on the U.S. Presidential Helicopter Squadron. That's cool. Uh, that's very cool. Yeah. Thanks to both of you, and congratulations. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Kind of a rambling last hour. We'll try to be more concise this hour. Had Ellen Weaver with us. Drew McKissick was with us. Honor of Vet. You know, some of these guys walk in and, and you kind of don't know where they're coming from. You know, the vets that are, are honored, uh, the father and son that just came in. It was pretty obvious that the father noticed something in the kid. Uh, he didn't want to be a major league baseball player or a you know a high school football coach he wanted to be in the military um never considered carolina clemson it was the marines or the army or the air force and i think that's an honorable path i mean mm-hmm. I, I really do I, I was thinking about this um the other day talking about student debt we talked a lot about student debt on this show today 71 percent of all jobs listed in america today stick with me for a second now 71 percent of all jobs listed in america today require a college degree 40% of our nation are college educated. I mean, how do we square that up? Think about that for a second. Now, I want, my, I want my two members of the General Assembly to hear me say this. 71% of all the jobs in America today require a college degree. 40% of Americans, about 38% of Americans have a college degree. I mean, they, they, we got to have a yin to the yang. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an out of balance there that has to be addressed um, some way, somehow. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, Mike Rickenboss, Senator Rickenboss with us, Representative Jay Jordan. Um, these guys get three excused absences a quarter. I mean, if they if they don't call in, I mean, if they just, you know, they, when I ran a truck body manufacturing plant, there's a difference in not being there and not calling in to say you're not going to be there. If you call in to say I'm not going to be there, that's an excused absence. We get it. Everything's okay. But if you just don't show up, wow. I mean, the... um. The lack of respect you show for this people <laughs> at Radio Brilliance is um is mind boggling. So so Low texted me last night and said he had something he had to take care of. He wouldn't be here this morning. Rev, you can put that on the register okay. as an excused, excused absence. absence. Yeah, you can I, I object you can to put that. that on the ledger as I an second. excused absence. Okay, we've we got a second. I, I totally object. Oh. The man's at a dove shoot, and that ain't that ain't fair. <laughs> you heard that? I didn't say it. <laughs> See, I, I had him working hard and tirelessly on behalf of the um, constituency. Yeah. You've got him in a dove shoot, Jordan. I, I tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> the truth teller is, is here now. And, and in Senator Rickenbaugh's defense, he has texted on the sure he, he has not made it into well, the show. So. And, and things happen. I mean, we know and that. We, we don't expect it. these guys yeah, to be course. here every Friday morning. Things happen. But um, just not showing up. I mean, we're going to accuse you of being, you know, drunk or something like that, you know, on, on the job. But I, I want to stop there. Let's get serious here for a second. Um, I text with both of you late yesterday afternoon into the evening, as a matter of fact, about the um, the Senate taking up the House bill. Uh, we, we had a conversation three months ago. Could the Republicans in South Carolina take yes for an answer? When Roe v. Wade is overturned, Dobbs becomes law of the land. The, the General Assemblies in the varying states had to make decisions. South Carolina's no different. Um, what, uh, Mike, I'll start with you because you're in the Senate and the Senate was the body addressing and debating yesterday. Kind of, kind of walk us through the logistics of yesterday in the Senate in relation to the abortion ban. You know, Jay told me to, to get ready for the show. And uh, I tell you, that it was a show. And I know you spent your time in there, Ken, but it's, you know, the, the ban that the House sent to us that we took up in medical affairs committee first. Um, we voted that out into the full floor. And what we realized was it wasn't a Republican versus Democrat situation. It was a Democrat 
versus Democrat, but then the Republicans really against themselves from the standpoint that they got split into three different, pretty clear factions. You had the Republicans candidly, and there's about, it's about a, about a 20, 60, 20 bell curve there, about a 20% of the Republicans there, almost exactly about six of them that were very, very liberal. They can call themselves Republicans, but in terms of where they stand on pro-life, very liberal approach, and that's their right. Anytime somebody will stand at the well and say, I am pro-life personally, but I believe it should be a woman's right to choose. You're not really pro-life at that point. When you say it, well, personally, but it's a woman's right to choose. So about six of them, and it'll come down to six in a second here, six of them were, were very, very liberal in how they approached abortion. Another six, especially from the upstate, were incredibly conservative, and then they wanted a full ban, no exceptions, and that's really what they came in wanting. And then there's about 60% in the middle that just wanted to protect the unborn. And they were open to, man, what do we need to do? What is passable? Because it comes down to a math equation right there. And as it turned out, Ken, at the, you know, after iteration, after iteration, there were 43 amendments at one point on the, the desk. You know what it's like. One after another, after another, and after all those amendments. Striking language and striking oh, language uh, and inserting yeah. strike language. Strike and insert. Strike yeah. and How many times did we hear strike yeah. and insert and then, uh, you know, perfunctory votes. And it's just one after another and procedural votes and, and moving amendments and changing amendments. What it came down to is there we needed 26 votes to accept the ban that the House sent to us. And we only had 24. There were five Republican senators that voted against that. They did not want the full ban. And their position was very clearly, they thought the House's bill with a ban that included exceptions for life of the mother, rape, and incest. Did your bill have fatal fetal anomalies? I believe it did. Yeah, so I think it was four exceptions. Uh, life of the mother, or significant harm to the mother, mother, rape, incest, and fatal fetal anomalies. Not just fetal anomalies, fatal fetal anomalies. And... Although that was the bill that came from the House, those five senators said, we cannot accept a ban. So we ended up having to settle, and we went over and over. And We did 21 hours of debate in two days there. In the 11th hour, um, our Senate Majority Leader went to the well and said, you know, we'll do one more vote and see, and everybody needs to go on record where they stand. And those five senators said, we will not vote um, for a ban. So we had to step back, redo another amendment there, and then we did a ban uh, not a ban, a bill that essentially perfected or tried to perfect the language of the heartbeat bill that is try currently trying to be challenged. So instead of a ban on abortion, what the Senate passed was an enhanced heartbeat bill. So abortion on demand for the first six weeks until a heartbeat is detected, which is about at six weeks, and then it includes the same exceptions. But it, instead of the 20-week exceptions that the House passed where you have for 20 weeks to enforce those exceptions. We reduced the exception period to 12 weeks. Jay, are you comfortable with that as a member of the House? I mean, you guys sent a bill over to the Senate. You don't expect that bill to stay as is. I mean, do you understand the complexities of the South Carolina State Senate? I mean, are you guys comfortable with what the Senate, it, w w the, the resolve of the Senate, the, the conclusion of the Senate is a little bit different than what you guys did at the House, but but do you see a chance there? Do, do you think this, this bill will be the final bill? Most likely, I would say yes. Um, you know, the House sent over a legislation, and this, this is not a criticism of Mike. I think he did a great job yesterday, and I applaud the, the, the group he describes as sort of that group in the but middle. But you saw this coming. Trying. The House knew what the Senate 
that there was going to be some division within the Republican Party in the Senate. Not just saw it, but dealt with it in the House side. What Mike just described, I would say, it pretty clearly articulates the process the House of Representatives went through. It wasn't it wasn't just Republican versus Democrat, which is usually the story in these types of situations. It was more Republican versus Republican than versus Democrat. And and that's that's a new sort of nuance to this process. And that's, you know, we went through a very similar process. If you go back to what the House did a few weeks ago, the bill actually failed and we had to be ready with a motion to reconsider. It's, it's very, it was very technical, but we had to be ready to sort of try and resurrect the bill because we had to demonstrate to the the folks that were, you know, the the no exceptions under any circumstances at any time that the bill could not pass under that circumstance. And when the bill failed in that form, we had to bring it back. And that's when we ultimately said, we can't get to where you want to get to. The best we're going to poss- possibly do is going to be um, no abortion except for these limited exceptions up to 12 weeks. And that passed the House. Now, that's, you know, that that was a solid version. I voted for that. Most Republicans voted for that. We sent that to the Senate. Senate has now, in my mind, clearly demonstrated um, they can't get that far. Um, and again, that's not a criticism of the folks that I consider that got in there and fought for uh, the better version. But now we have to look at, as, as someone once said, politics is the art of the possible. And we need to, as they did yesterday, move the ball forward in some way, shape, or form. You know, I'm, I'm known for saying uh, South Carolina is one of the most pro-life states in the country states in the country and i believe that but it's because we've pushed the ball forward a little bit at a time i'm sure when you were lieutenant governor you saw your share of pro-life bills come through the process Uh, this isn't the first pro-life bill i've been a part of it it happens um you know on a regular basis as we move the ball forward i was thinking when we were texting and mike said i told mike get ready for the show i celebrated my 15th uh, anniversary on the state house, having eaten my wife and I eating dinner on the state house steps because I couldn't leave because we were debating pro-life uh, uh, legislation. So it, it's going to come back to the house. Um, my, you know, recommendation recommendation to to the the members of my body is going to be, you know, the, the Senate has clearly demonstrated where they are and where they're not. And if we're going to move the ball forward, we're going to do so in something very akin to this. Should should we even consider a referendum? Mike, I'll go back to you. Kansas did something like that. Um, if, if there's that much discon- if there's that much disagreement within one political party in a body like the Senate, should this be left to the voters? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and that came up yesterday. Um, it was actually a bipartisan approach. Uh, uh, Senator Malloy and Senator Davis both brought that up. I think the real challenge you run into that is the amount of money that will be poured into it from groups like Planned Parenthood, um, $20, $30 million. And, and candidly, I'll say it, of disinformation, of misinformation sure. to to tell a story that isn't accurate. Um, the groups like that would make you believe, the, the very true pro-abortion groups would make you believe that one out of every three women is a raped 12-year-old girl having an abortion. That's just not true. Now, my heart goes out for them. I've said it all along. My mom was 14. I get it. Life happens, and it's often tragic. But the majority, anywhere from 97 to 99% of abortions are abortions that are done for birth control. They're not rape. They're not incest. They're not fetal fatal, anom- or fatal fetal anomalies. They're not life of the mother. They're because the woman wants to terminate the pregnancy. And, and the, the real challenge with that six weeks, the fact that we didn't pass that ban, and this is the, the kind of the— 
maybe the upside of this is that the people, that those five senators are going to need to answer for it. Last year alone, of the of the abortions that were done, three thousand and seven of them were done at six weeks or less. So those five senators who voted against that ban and said, "No, nah, I'm just not comfortable," they need the first six weeks to really decide whether they want to do it. That's three thousand lives last year, twenty four hundred the year before that that they're going to need to answer for to their voters. And they get a chance to, to voice their concern when they vote, and I appreciate the process, but they're going to need to answer for that. And, and Jay, the, the referendum is a pure way to solve the issue. Let the electorate of this state decide whether they want or what sort of abortion regulations they want. But I think Mike makes a very valid point that I've always been concerned about, the, the political operative groups. I mean, these, these political action, I mean, Planned Parenthood won't be the only group. I mean, there'll be other groups. There'll be, you know, real liberal organizations all over the country, and there's nothing they'd rather do than influence abortion law with a state like South Carolina. Well, we, we see it in Columbia. This is, I'm not aware of a more divisive issue. Um, th- this issue is, you know, takes us to the brink of, you know, personal and, and tearing us apart in some sense. I'm not so sure that putting that on the back of the state is a great idea to, to be uh, essentially, um, you know, campaigning on this issue for, pitting neighbor against neighbor exactly and, and and in doing so in a way that we've just described that is going to be disingenuous at times misinformed at times i'm not so sure that's the best for the path forward the other side of it is is technically i'm not sure it's technically legal when you go back and look at the the law and the laws on the books um you know there, there's a reason why people send us to columbia you know and they're they're you know, i'm running for re-election right now there's an opportunity if you don't think we do it right, then you get your opportunity to vote in a referendum uh, every two years for me and every four years for Mike. Let's let's stay here for just a second. I want to conclude this segment with this question. Um, I don't know anybody in Columbia. I, mean, I don't know everybody, but I know a lot of those folks. I don't know anybody in Columbia that allows their Christian faith to be as much a part of their public service as you do. I mean, you've made that clear unapologetically. I mean, I'm a Christian. I let that be a part of how I make determinations in the political sphere. I think both of you accepted. I'm not running a church. Uh, I'm I'm not a deacon in a church when I go do that job. But how hard was it to try and balance the belief you have, the the, the faith that inspires you, and, and the practical reality of not being so pure on abortion as to understand there has to be some exception in the political sphere. Mike, I'll start with you there. Yeah, it was incredibly challenging because you balanced your faith against math. And the faith says that that life is no less important at five weeks, at four and a half weeks, at any any number in there. It's no less important. Why are we need, Why are we not fighting for that ban? Let's just keep doing it. Let's just keep doing it. And we we have a a calling to do good, to do right. And I believe that if we're put in this position and we've got God's wisdom and discernment, then we've got to legislate with that. But the math says, and I appreciate our Senate majority leader so much. He said, okay, we can keep doing this, but it's still 24 votes. We need 26. And we broke off into caucus. We had a closed door meeting. You know what they're like, Ken. And, you know, everybody looked at each other and everybody raised their hand and we counted the votes. And those other five senators said, we disagree when there are competing rights, in this case, the right of the mother versus the right of that unborn child. It's the life of the mother that wins. And she has more rights in this case, so we are not budging. So there's a point we have to accept. I'm going to work to save that 97%, at 98%, um, and I can't get 100% of them. Jay? 
comes back to the art of the possible. You know, my faith is a major part of my life. I've never answered that any other way. Doesn't make me perfect. Um, you know, I joke around sometimes and say I'm just glad when I run for election that my the folks in my house don't determine it because I'm pretty sure I lose three to two, and that's with me voting for the dog. Um, but you know, it, it it colors who we are. It we we t- we carry that with us, and it 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 informs and dictates a lot of the decisions we make in life. But at the end of the day, when we have issues like this, while we bring those things to the table. It becomes the art of the possible. I'm not choosing between um, perfect and and unperfect, or, or perfect and the, the spectrum just doesn't work like that. I'm choosing for what's available and what's in front of me and what can be accomplished. Well said. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Got all three here now. See what when a, when a fellow <laughs> member of the delegation is called out by. A, I mean, I, I ran interference for you, Philip. I mean, I had you covered. I mean, you were in a top secret meeting top on behalf secret. of the uh, the people of South Carolina, <laughs> and you couldn't be disturbed. I mean, any anything but this meeting, you would have been here. We were under attack by morning doves this morning, and I defended Florence well. Okay, good, good deal. So, so representative secret, he's in here in camouflage. He is, I, I snuck in. This you meeting you were hiding in. from something. I, I, I still can't see him. I just hear him. I don't know. <laughs> the Illuminati, the Florence Illuminati. Yeah, there you go. So we got all three members uh, that, that have frequently been with us on Friday mornings. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Sam in Darlington, hello. You are on with our delegation. Thank you. Uh, I have a, a question for the delegation, or just an idea I'd like to run by them. This is in relation to the abortion laws, anti-abortion laws. Uh, the way the way childbirth has been designed by God, the the woman, the mother, has the most, you know, has the primary responsibility. And the most ability to protect uh, that that early developing child uh, than anybody else, and you know the state, you know in the in the early weeks, um, the state can't really effectively force her to protect that child. I mean, nobody else may even know about it. Uh, she can get pills and so forth. Uh, um, it seems to me that. The state law should not attempt to replace the the self government of the mother, especially in the early weeks. It, it's just it's just not going to work. And so, better to to help uh, to incentivize her. Maybe maybe I do some more in way of paid parental leave or, or something like that, which the state has done some of that. But anyway, I just wanted to run that by idea by you guys. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that, Philip. You know. I think you're right in terms of if you pass a law, people will look for a way around it. And and I'm afraid that, you know, all our chest beating that we do, people will find a way around whatever we pass. And and I think they'll get some doctor from out of state to prescribe medicine for an abortion. They'll end up getting that mail order to them. They'll take it. And then They'll end the life of the child themselves. And then they'll go to their OBGYN and say, uh, I've had a miscarriage. You know, I, I, I've, my, my baby has died. Please do a DNC and remove that. And next thing you know, it'll be not any different than now. And that's my fear. I don't know how you stop that. That's just, you know, it's coming through the mail and, and it'll be an out-of-state doctor and they can write a script. So I'm afraid we're, we're not going to end abortion as we know it. 
let, let's let's go down this road. I mean, it's, it's as if that's not controversial or complicated or enough. A um, couple of your friends in the Senate, Democrats, sent me text yesterday um, mentioning that you know you serve you can. I mean, I mean, he does it in good spirit and good faith, but he said you conservative Republicans, you know, you stand here and you're convinced you're right by standing here. Okay, we are. We're convinced we're right by trying to discourage abortion, saving the unborn, protecting the unborn. But but then he goes on to elaborate. Okay, there are five thousand predominantly black. Uh, kids in foster care that nobody really cares much about or for. Do we have a responsibility as a political party to care for? I mean, if, if we if we um, de-incentivize abortion, in other words, Philip, if abortion goes down by 20% in South Carolina and there are more babies, I don't want to say forced to be born, but allowed to be born that maybe before this law would not have been born, do we politically and societally have an obligation I mean, I believe in personal responsibilities and individual liberties and, and freedoms, and you make your choice and I make mine, but there is a collective to be concerned about. That There is a, a stark reality out there that these kids are born uh, in homes that aren't ready or capable of taking care of them. What what do conservative Republicans owe to that part of the debate? Well, there is a financial cost to a child, whether the parents or parent bears that or whether the state does. So. You know, things we can do to maybe help a little bit is make abortion, not, not I mean, make adoption easier. Not that you don't screen parents, but at least from the cost of getting, uh, you know, at, an adoption done, we, we can help with that. And we may have to end up, you know, fortifying funds for for child services of all types and, and foster care and, and uh, orphanages and all that if we end up with a, a higher number of babies. There's a cost to society on that. Because, Jay, conservative government is less government. But there's a human practicality here that we have to accept as being real. Well, you know, as conservative Republicans, we love to say life is precious, and it is. It's a God-given, you know, thing, and it is incredibly precious. But it's, it's precious in, in, in the mother's womb, and it's precious for that little baby, and it's precious as that child grows up into an adult and lives, you know, hopefully a productive life as a, as a, a meaningful citizen to our, in, in our area. Um, I go back to what, what Philip was saying. I'm not sure why, as I said before, we've, we've taken up these pro-life bills many times as we've sort of moved the ball forward in, in, in a pro-life productive way. But I haven't seen the adoption issue get the same level of um, the same level of discussion that I did this time. Why? I, I can't really answer that. I think it might be connected to the fact that before we were dealing with while we were dealing with the practical, we were also dealing with the what what may come with the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade sort of existing. But out now there. it's done, and now it's real. Now, okay, or what we're doing now, it's not what might happen, what the Supreme Court might do. It's what we're we're going to do with, with this issue, and so maybe that has issue made it a little more practical in that sense. But I think that's going to lead. I know that's going to lead because there's, I've seen discussion on it, been a part of the discussion on it. We've got to find ways to make adoption practically simpler again we're not saying we're just going to turn kids loose to whoever steps up to the plate and says i want i want a child there needs to be some screening as philip just said but it, but there's no reason there's absolutely no reason last estimate i heard the other day was it cost around twenty thousand dollars to adopt, adopt a child that is crazy that takes off that takes so many people out of the equation that would say i'd love to take a child I, for whatever reason I, I don't or can't love to have a child but it's practically impossible because of the finance. We've got to find ways to not not take away all the screening, but make it easier for good folks to take the responsibilities. Okay, let's go here, Mike. Should government subsidize adoption? Yeah, and first of all, Sam, thank you for that call because you're exactly right. We, 
we can't legislate someone's heart. So we can pass every bill in the, in the land, but it doesn't change someone's heart and, and change the decision they want to make. If they're going to try to have an abortion, they're going to figure out a way. An alley, cross state lines, mail order, they'll figure it out. To Philip's point there. But I think conservative government, government doesn't mean zero government. It means responsible and it means accountable and transparent government. I think we could argue a move like how many zeros did we put behind the Carolina Panthers facility could be questionable about transparent and responsible, but assisting in the lives of young unborn children, unborn who are born and are unwanted, figuring out what to do with them. We're going to pay the piper on that one way or another, whether that be through incarceration at some point, whether that three through be rehab services, whether that be through public school funding and, and, there's so many different ways that we will t- be taking care of those children if we don't figure out a way to get them in a good, solid, providing family. So I was talking to the executive director of uh, Citizens for Life on the way over um, to the Senate yesterday or the day before. And there's now a, 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 a big effort that I'm a part of for a fast track adoption court. Now, it's not going to take away the rigor of making sure the families are safe. We've got to make it faster and less expensive to go from A to Z. Mike, do I want to stop you there? Do we know yeah. how to do that? I mean, we know it takes too long and costs too much. We know it takes too do long. Do we and know why it takes too long and costs too much? And, and that's what the, exactly the, this study is to do right now is figure out how do we take out the unnecessary steps in the process. We need to keep the necessary steps. We need to keep the steps in there that do as much rigor as we can to protect those children. But the foster care system and the adoption system both need revamped. The foster care system, which is that really that stopgap measure in the middle there, after a woman says, I can't take care of this child, I don't want this child, until they're adopted, how do we do a better job of finding a place for them to be safe? So it isn't just adoption, it's also foster care, combining the two together and figuring out that the the victory lap isn't in passing a, a full ban, a better modified heartbeat bill, anything in between. That is simply the jumping off point. How do we now help provide for a child who can't provide for themselves is the real question. And there's going to need to be resources behind that. Because, Philip, we've taken over ownership of this. Some of the Republican Party now has the authority to dictate the terms and conditions of abortion law in South Carolina. We don't in California. We don't in New York. But in South Carolina, it is a conservative General Assembly. Um, you, you guys have the votes to dictate what is done and what's not done. Um, is it fair to say that there has to be serious thought given about what to do with these kids who are eventually born. Uh, in other words, streamline the adoption, make make um, less expensive. Um, I don't know if a government program needs to be created or invented or, or streamlined, but is that something you think the, the Republican leadership of the General Assembly should consider as a priority? I think you have to. We're going to have more children. We're not going to stop all abortion, but we're going to have more children. But if the legislation works, we have fewer abortions. Well, That's right. But by default, we have more babies born. We have more babies sure. born. And, and maybe, hopefully, we'll have better contraception, maybe better understanding, making sure that contraception can be provided uh, in for poor people who just can't, you know, if they can't afford contraception, they sure can't afford the baby. Sure. But, you know, one of the criticisms we get from the Democrat Party is, you know, y'all love to say save the baby, but once they're born, you don't want to take care of them. It's true. We don't want to take care of them. We want loving parents because that's the number one. That's the best plan that God put together was man and a woman having a baby and staying together for life. It, babies require, you know, 18, and in my case, 30 years. I can know, relate. <laughs> to, to take care of them. And, uh, 
and, and the financial <laughs> necessities just keep on coming. Um, but we do have, we're going to have to do a better job with more babies being born. That's very encouraging. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a second. I want to talk about higher ed and student debt. Be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Every member of the delegation left. And Rev took a lasso. It's George Strait Friday, so Rev took a lasso. And anytime they a hear lasso. student debt in college, higher education, they're like, man, I'm out of here. I don't want any part. Any part. It, it's hard. It's complicated. I get it. I understand it. Nobody expects you to solve it. But but there's a, there's a debate to be had now. And I think Biden put gasoline on the fire by not forgiving, but transferring at least $300 billion in student debt. I'm arguing it's probably closer to $1.2 trillion when you go some of, some of the what I call the IDR, the Income Driven Repayment System. Mm-hmm. I mean, he raised the number from two, $150 to $250, the, the disposable income from 5%, excuse me, from 10% to 5%, and the forgiveness from 20 years to 10 years. So, I mean, it's going to cost the American taxpayer in the ballpark of $1.2 trillion. You guys, to some degree, Philip, I'll start with you, to some degree, you guys fund higher education. Um, there's a debate about whether you should give more or less, how much lottery money, you know, uh, or should they raise tuition, freeze tuition, um, at the macro that this is out of your purview, but at the macro, what do you make of president Biden agreeing to forgive or transfer somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars of student debt to the American taxpayer, 70% of which never went to college. He's just trying to buy an election. He's using my tax dollars to get people to vote for him. And, and, you know, it's effective. And you say, hey, that's $10,000 if I vote for a Democrat. That That's meaningful. And so I think every election they have a gimmick to buy votes. This is theirs this time. Jay? You know, sometimes you come across tough issues and you can say, I'm not sure exactly what the right path forward is, but you can clearly identify what the wrong path is. And this is a perfect example of that. This is a terrible, terrible decision made by an administration in Washington that has is, is made one bad decision after another, and I hope will prove to be, as I've seen some polling, a, a true wake-up call to the people in part in some parts of the country that have you know swing states and things like that, and will prove that this will be a, an opportunity uh, for people to go vote their, their opinions come this next election time. But this is, this is a complete redistribution. This is... You know, I, I said I saw someone put on Facebook the other day. This isn't, you know, um, forgiving student debt. This is simply transferring student debt to those that didn't even go to college a lot sometimes. So this this is again a, a terrible thing. I think it's politics at its worst. It is an example of how desperate the Biden administration is. They're losing bad now. They're going to lose bad in the midterms, and I think they know they're going to lose the presidency in in two years. So what they're doing now is optics. And they're trying to, like Phillips said, they're truly trying to, to buy the election. There's folks that I've talked to personally that have graduated from college and don't like this plan. They're like, I paid my way, paid my loans back. There's folks who never went to college and said, why is that useless degree my responsibility? Why is that debt my responsibility? So it's not an indictment of the student who went and took out the loans, right? I don't necessarily blame them. They're taking advantage of the system that is allowing this to happen. And I fault Biden. I fault Biden's cronies in that plan because if, if you say to somebody, hey, you got $50,000 of loans, I'll, how about I cut that down to 40? If you vote for me, wink, wink, nod, nod, most people are going to do it right there. They like that, that. That is a lot of money. It shouldn't happen. That's not who our country is. It's not what made us great. Okay, that's the setup. 
That's the fastball in the middle of the plate. <laughs> Let's go back to Representative Lowe. Here's the stickler. You ready? No, oh, I, yeah. I know you three guys are. Oh, wait. What, I got to go, Ken. Take what, care. Good to no, see you. Here comes <laughs> how do you fix it. What can, what can, the reason we've got all this student debt is the cost of higher education has outpaced inflation by eight times. I mean, it's a multiple of eight. I mean, it's not 8% more. It's a multiple of eight. When you measure inflation over the past 35 years and the cost of higher education, it's the only sector of the economy, Philip, that has outpaced health care. What can the General Assembly in South Carolina do to help make college more affordable to the men and women of this state? The last three years, we've frozen tuition, and we've given them some state money instead for in-state students only. So that was our attempt to to slow it down. Um, I also froze fees. The first year, we didn't freeze fees, and I raised all kind of grief about that. And well, we got, you're the one that shined. I mean, you're the one that made me aware of all the fees that, that a certain university in our state has. It's a thousand fees. I mean, it's literally a thousand fees that they've authorized themselves. And you're the one that kind of raised my awareness to that. Continue. I'm sorry. Well, don't interrupt. They, they started down this road just thinking about it. And I said, look, let's, let's let them just keep doing the out-of-state tuition. What do they want to charge? I don't care. But, you know, let's help in-state. And, and I helped come up with this concept of freezing. I, I, I guess that's helpful to the local person but still there's some use of taxpayer money so it's no cure you know the easier money is to get you know they're gonna they're gonna reach out and get it every chance we give them, whether it's you know uh, uh something that that's coming as a discount i mean a 501 three any, anything that can come up with some extra money, then higher ed is going to reach out and get their share of it every time they can. And, Jay, as long as the federal government is guaranteeing the debt, I don't know a lot that you can do to control the cost of college. Well, there's some things about this you're absolutely right that are outside of our control, you know, and this goes back to, and I agree that it is different, but it is connected to some of the things you've talked about on the show in the past. You know, it used to be in years gone by, in perhaps the last generation or two, you know, someone could work hard, get a good job, perhaps didn't even need a college education. Um, provide for their family, uh, take that week at the beach, go down there and get a you know a shrimp plate and hush puppies for you know eight eight dollars, and everybody have a big time, and it was a great great situation. Uh, things have changed, not just in the higher ed world, but across the board. But I do think there are some things we can look at at higher ed. I think we can look at some universities that have done it better than others. We look at Francis Marion. I think they've done a really good job at recognizing the uh, environment around them. The the uh, Look, give you an example. Um, we're we have a, health, a great healthcare industry in in this region of of the state. Uh, areas around us here in the PD depend on our healthcare, so they come to the, to Florence from all around the counties around us to to get quality healthcare. Francis Marion's recognize us recognize that, and they've developed um, part, a significant part of their education structure to healthcare. I think we've got to be more fundamentally connected to the needs of our state and our community in building out the type of education we're going to prov- the, the, that's going to be provided. No offense to the person who goes out and gets that you know French literature degree. If that's what you want and you, you want to pay for it, go get it. But recognize that that's not what the market is, is, is rewarding. Mike, got about a minute and a half. Yeah, I think financial literacy is a big part of it, Ken. Uh, universities who take the if we build it, they will come approach. We'll, we'll charge you this for tuition and all these fees, and, and we'll make it this expensive. They expect students to come. I think there needs to be a recalibration. The financial literacy, teaching young people in school, middle school, even in high school, 
their parents. Look at the math. You can go spend $80,000, $90,000 at a public institution, university, four-year institution, and come out making $30,000 or be unemployed. Or you can go to a technical college. You can get a degree as a plumber, HVAC, auto technician, you know, manufacturing, fabrication, have zero debt and come out making twice that or three times that amount. Financial literacy to let people make their own decisions. We've got to empower young people and their parents to know that the four-year institution is not the recipe for success that they thought it might be. Well explained. Thanks to all three of you. Appreciate the time. Um, Latecomer Philip, I mean, I, I think you, you, you kind of called him out and made him. He didn't even offer us any of his doves. I mean, <laughs> he will. I wouldn't go hunting I'm with sure him, Jay, is all I can say. Don't Do, get in front of me. I've been hunting with him many times. I don't get to shoot anything. He's so good at it, he kills everything. <laughs> he's using those good shells. He's using those cheating shells. That's what I, he's doing. I'll let you clean my bird. <laughs> <laughs> hey, take a break. Back in just a minute. Thanks to all three of you. is our number. So Rev says that we can play a George Strait song every Friday for a year and never run out of number one songs to play. Yeah. Yeah, like 61 or 60-something number one um, songs. I don't know if that's number one song or not. It's kind of a different approach. Let me ask you this. So this is the 9 o'clock hour, last hour of the week, right? I mean, we'll talk politics if you want. But but we'd rather not. I mean, we're trying to decompress here and get away from the, the negativity of politics. And I want to say and, this. And similar to Russia's Open Line Friday yeah. that he used to do. Bring it on. I mean, whatever you want to talk about, if there's something out there you think is worthy of a conversation, let's have at it. If not, you're stuck with what I want to talk about. And we'll talk about Woody Allen and Bruce Springsteen for the next uh, <laughs> the next hour. One in the because same, Because they're they? twins. I mean, they're, yeah, they're <laughs> twins. That can't be the dude who wrote Born to Run. <laughs> I mean, something has happened here, guys, I'm telling you, and, and it's beyond explanation. I want to ask you this. So when you think of George Strait, somebody gave you, um, a, a, a lady that works, Sandy, that works here in the office, gave you a, um, a gift a second ago. Mm-hmm. And the gift is? It is a, a magazine uh, commemorating Olivia Newton-John. Okay. And it's a pictures, an entire magazine dedicated to her and pictures of her. Okay. it's pretty, And I appreciate it, Sandy. Thank uh, you. Let, let's say this. 
It's pretty obvious. Freehold, jump in here now. life in pictures. You, you give the opinion of a northern aggressor. Um, so what is it about us that, that in, in other words, what about Rev led him to believe or think so fondly of Olivia Newton-John? Was it, what is it about me that led me to think so much of Bruce Springsteen? What is it about you that, that puts you on the Pearl Jam train, so to speak? Hmm. I mean, it, it's easy to see the talent in Olivia Newton-John, right? And the beauty. I mean, somebody pretty and talented are going to attract a lot of attention, right? She's a pretty, or was, a very beautiful, attractive, and talented female. I get that. I mean, dudes are going to be naturally attracted to those sorts of qualities and characteristics. I don't give a damn how woke society becomes. <laughs> that ain't going out of style, right? <laughs> it's built in. Well, I mean, testosterone ain't going away. I mean, I think it's in decline. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's in serious decline. Mm-hmm. I think masculinity and testosterone are much more. Uh, we, 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 we need a heavier dose of testosterone and masculinity in society today. And I think most women would agree to that. I mean, I don't want to try to speak for women, but I think most females in America today would agree, uh, would agree that we don't need a decline in testosterone or masculinity. I mean, that, that, that's a big part of our society. Here's the question. What about Rev? What, what inner compulse um, led you to be a big fan of Paul McCartney? What about me led me to be a big fan mm-hmm. of Bruce Prime? I mean, I'm not by myself. You're not by yourself. I mean, McCartney's got millions of fans. Springsteen's got millions of fans. Pearl Jam has millions of fans. Is there something in your DNA? Is there some is there some dark corner of your life, or maybe a bright corner of your life right. that kind of led you down that road? Or is it timing? And you know, I, I would have been ten or eleven when the movie Grease came out, and that of course impacted me. I think you're I've very been, impressionable yeah, at that of course. age. And here's a chick with a you know black leather pants, and yeah, I mean that tends to get your attention because that's when testosterone begins festering. I, I'm convinced <laughs> of that. At about ten or eleven is when you oh okay. I don't feel like I did feel um, but, but the about funny, those sorts of things. The, the, the funny thing to me about the Olivia thing, we've talked about it on the air before, and you tease me about you know Stevie Nicks or Olivia Newton-John, and I have just always been a fan, always. But you're a fan of Stevie Nicks, too. Absolutely, but a super fan of Olivia. Okay. I mean, I, I, found, I found something the other day in my desk at home where I had written to her fan club and got a, you know, just a... As pop. an adult? No, no, this is, okay. when, this is way back when. <laughs> Probably in the late 70s. But I still have it. I still have it. That's the point. I found it. It was week before last. Well, yeah. (laughs) Fan club had closed down, but it got forwarded. Um, But the funny thing, and this kind of has tickled me, ever since Olivia passed away, I have received emails and Facebook messages from people from my past. I'm talking high school people that I haven't heard from in 20 years People I worked with in the 90s that I haven't talked to since I worked with them. Hey, when I heard about Olivia, I thought about you and just wanted you to know, man. I thought I'd reach out and say hello, and I'm sorry to hear it. So, so I, I must have really kind of been vocal about well, I mean, this. The, the crush endured. You know, people yeah, remembered that I you guess. had a crush. Frio, you were going to say something about Pearl Jam. What were we going to say? No, um, Dave actually nailed it. That's why I kind of pointed at him. Because um, when you asked the question, I was going to say it's formative years, right? So he, Olivia Newton-John's 80s. You were, you know, late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen, and I was a child of the 90s. So, actually, Allison Chains is my favorite band, not, but Pearl Jam's right up there. Yeah. They're, they're definitely top three. Well, but I'll tell you, Pearl Jam's probably one of my 10 favorite. Yeah. I mean, they're not top yeah, three I, or four I, for I me. Like they're, they're one of my 10 favorite bands. I think Eddie Vedder's an extremely talented front man. I mean, unbelievably talented, dynamic, and, and has this weird vocal about him. You know what I mean? He's got this real distinct-sounding um, vocal. Here's what I believe about Springsteen. I, I'll, I'll kind of... um. I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll self-evaluate for a second. 
I went most of my life not giving a John Brown about the world around me. I mean, I have I had a very, very limited experience in life. I mean, I, I grew up in the country. Um, I lived a very rural existence. Um, I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, people think I'm joking around when I say this, but I'm not. I'm not joking around at all. I was literally kind of locked in a small town. And I was I was okay. I mean, I was not dis. I mean, I was not disillusioned about the world. I think I understood. That, okay, there are big buildings in New York City. Um, but but I've never. I mean, I, I I don't have an extensive set of experiences. I mean, I've got a lot of experiences in my life, but they're confined to a certain way of life. Does that make sense? So so Springsteen wrote about things that I was curious of. In other words, I went to Hannah Pamplico High School. I went to the Quick Burger. I went to the farm. I cut grass. I worked in my father's business. I played some softball. I played some football, baseball, basketball. I was not interested at all in the world out there until I started listening to Springsteen's music. And his music was about, you know, it's a death trap. It's a suicide trap. I've got to get out while I'm young. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, okay, I can relate to that. He I mean, spoke to you yeah, in, your, for, in your formative In times. my formative years, as, as um, Friol said, uh, in not that I was ever bothered by the life I had, but I wondered what other sorts of lives there were out there. And Bruce spoke of people who felt trapped. You know, they weren't miserable. I mean, they weren't unhappy, but but they, they just felt like there's something out there I'm missing. There's something out there I'm not getting. Now, now let me say this. I'm an Olivia Newton-John fan because I'm a dude. And, and I was, you know, a younger dude in the 80s. I was born in 63, so in, in 1980s. I think Reese was 78. Mm-hmm. So I'm 15 years old. Well, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why I was impressed with Olivia Newton-John, right? right? I mean, it wasn't her deep lyrics. <laughs> no. I mean, it wasn't her stage presence. I mean, I can assure you of that. I mean, it was her. I mean, it was her beauty and her her singing, her accent. I mean, it was very surfacey. I mean, there was no complex. Uh, the, the 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 relationship that I had with Bruce was a little bit complex. Mm-hmm. Because it was about his lyrics and my life and and where they converge and and where they cross and where do I go from here and I mean here's a guy speaking about you know it's a death trap it's suicide I got to get out while I'm young and here's another chick with you know um, she's real pretty and she's wearing black leather pants I mean that's about as deep as it got there <laughs> I mean it wasn't real complicated at all there was a um but but anyway I just think it's interesting for those of us who would call ourselves super fans. I mean, there are Gamecock super fans. There are Tiger super fans. There are, you know, Major League Baseball super fans. My father-in-law passed away. He would have been a Major League Baseball super fan. I mean, if there was a baseball game on, he loved the Yankees, but he was going to watch a baseball game. I mean, if the game came on at 7, he'd cut his grass at 5. If the game came on at 2, he'd eat lunch at 1130. You know what I mean? He was he was going to build his. So what about us? And, and I think you guys are on it. I think it's those formative years that influence far more than you ever imagined they do who you are today. You'd like to believe, well, I mean, that, those experiences back then, I mean, that's not the guy I am now. I, I bet if you dug deep enough, it really is the, 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 the man or woman you have become. Th- those formative years are so, so influential in all of our lives. And they, I don't know, Rev, they, they create, <laughs> create the person we are, we are today. Do we have a call? Let's go there. Jerry in Florence. Hi, Jerry. Hey, how you doing today? Hey, Jerry, how are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, I'm first-time caller, uh, relatively new to Florence, been here about five years, and uh, I just wanted to talk about something because uh, uh, it's so prevalent. 
and uh, I don't see anything being done about it. Y'all probably talked about it before, but it's about littering here in South Carolina. The amount of litter is just unreal. I, I, I've never seen anything like it, and it, it doesn't appear that uh, there's any kind of enforcement from where I see it. And uh, I called and tried to see about getting a sign to put up about littering on my road. And uh, I was told by the State Department that they no longer provided those signs. Do you uh, have anything you can offer here? Jerry, let me work on that. I mean, I know the signs you're talking about. Thank you for the and call. First of all, you're right. Yeah, uh, welcome I agree to Florence with you. 100%. And no question about it. And I've often under I've, I've tried to understand why someone believes it's okay to throw a, a bottle out of the window or a cup out of the window or a bag of trash out of the window. Um, I had someone explained it to me. I mean, if if we're responsible for being stewards of God's earth, and we are, uh, we can debate climate change and the oceans rising and the temperature and in extreme weather. I mean, those are real complicated debates. That, that you don't have the answer to, nor do I. But but somebody who rolls the window down and, and intentionally throws a, a bag of McDonald's trash out of the window, I mean, that, that's a sin against God. I mean, to me, and I mean that sincerely, but I mean, to me, that is a, I mean, that, what, what makes somebody, how does somebody rationalize that that's okay? I mean, I understand you believe in climate change or you don't. Um, you put faith in the scientist or you don't. You question the science or you believe. I mean, I, I, th- those are fundamental debates that I think need to happen. And the more of those we have. But 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 litter is something that I just can't for the life of me. Look, I get that every now and then you forget that there's a cup in the back of your truck. I mean, we all make mistakes. I mean, the humanity's full of arid people. So I understand when, when you get in your truck and you drive down the road and you forgot about that cup you put in the back when you were, you know, mowing your lawn. I don't want to say cutting grass too much. People think I'm a redneck. When you're mowing your lawn. <laughs> I mean, I, I get that. But but to, to, to not, roll not the window down, I'll give an example. I pull up at a local big box. Don't want to name it. Pull up at a local big box uh, one day last week um, preparing for the tailgate. That's what I was doing. I was kind of getting ready for our tailgate. Needed some um, some equipment to make sure we had everything covered. I pull up in the parking lot, and um, and there's a car beside me. I come back. The car's gone, but there's a bag of trash sitting there. I mean, somebody thought it was okay to roll the window down or open the door and take the bag of trash. I think it might have been a Wendy's bag. And it's, you know, hmm. yay big. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a little balled up, you know, nothing. I mean, and I'm going like, who, who believes that's okay? And what do you do about it? I mean, to, to me, that's kind of the consciousness of man. I mean, is man that unaware? I mean, do we lack do we, do we lack that self that much self awareness? Jerry, you're exactly right, and we've talked about this for about ten years. Not every day, obviously, but we engage in this argument about how the highways and byways of this area look in contrast or comparison to other places. And and something, I mean, if you're you got to pretty up a place. I mean, if a place is going to be marketable and economic development, all these other sorts of things that we're ambitious of and talk a lot about, I think a testament to who the people in this community are, how clean it is or not. And, and there's an element within us. I mean, I don't do it. I'm not saying I've never let a, something blow out the back of my truck, but I don't remember ever intentionally leaving something by my car in a parking lot of a business or rolling my window down what i'd say in the country spooling my window down and just <laughs> i've heard that one spooling <laughs> well in the old days no power windows you know to yeah. crank it you gotta spool that window okay. down hey spool your window down man <laughs> <laughs> <That's a new laughs> one. 
843 Jerry, I'm not laughing, but, but because it is an issue and it needs to be addressed, and we probably do need more enforcement. We do need more signage. Um, the, the notion that the signs aren't available any longer, I don't have any idea. Can't answer that, but I'll try to get you an answer. Still got some friendlies in, in DOT and other places that I might could try to communicate or contact with. But, um, but, but I, th- there's something that there's a, there's a human blind spot. We all have them. You've got them. I got them. Everybody has blind spots in their lives, but, but the blind spot that allows somebody to put a piece of trash or a bag of trash in the parking lot of a business they don't own there's something bizarre about that i mean it's not like pulling a gun and robbing somebody i mean i'm not equating it to that but there's some moral judgment or there there's some i don't know rev uh just who thinks that's okay because if you don't think it's okay you don't do it who believes that that's okay and this person like i said car sitting there I get back, car's gone. There's a bag of trash. And it didn't blow. I mean, you can tell it. I mean, it wasn't a truck. as a car. It didn't blow out. No way in the world it blew out. It just sitting there. I'm going like, wow. I mean, I, I didn't say, well, I'll tell you what else. I said, damn, that's slack. I mean, that's incredibly, incredibly slack. You're right. And I guess those of us who care about the community need to strongly encourage those in charge of the community to enforce police and monitor those activities more closely than we are. Let's go to the phone. John in Florence. Hello, John. Hello. Ken, uh, there was a video came out in the 70s uh, from the University of Colorado, a guy named Dr. Morris Massey. And he said and postulated that what you are is where you were when. And that's the name of the, the video. And it had three parts to it. It was it was so popular. And it explains that, just like in the name, what you grow up with becomes important to you. I liked Olivia Newton-John, but I didn't care for Lady Gaga because I knew Olivia Newton-John as a younger, younger man. And Lady Gaga, I was already an old-timer. She didn't reach me. Those formative years. Right. That's an interesting analysis. Mm-hmm. What, what was the, who was the author again? His name was Morris Massey, Dr. Morris Massey. Okay. I may look what that up and try to learn a little something. When. What I you think, are is what you were when. What you are is where you were when. Where you were when. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting, and yeah. I would imagine that would be a scholarly um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, Rev, a, um, uh, uh, an analysis of, of what we are, why we are, where we are, who we are. That's just interesting to me. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably interesting to me. Um, well, I, let's use this as an example. Somebody believed that it was okay to sit that bag of trash beside the road. Why? Why did somebody, what, what, what fundamental in their life is lacking? What didn't they get that they should have? That, that allowed them to believe that's okay. Same thing with rolling a window down, spooling a window down, throwing a bag of trash out of the window. What didn't that person get to convince them, to lead them, to believe that's irresponsible? You see where I'm headed? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, all, we're all byproducts. I mean, all of us. And, and I think that's very interesting. And I think you guys nailed it with the formative years, that there's a certain period of time in our lives 
that we are probably more impressionable than we ever imagined we could be. Uh, I don't let that buy, you know, I, I don't put my faith in that. I don't put much stock in that. Yeah, I listen to it, but I don't let it, you know, dictate what I believe. And oh, okay, be careful with that. Take a break. We'll be back in just a second. You know, thinking about that bag of trash in that big box parking lot. I mean, it, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. I mean, it is because you, um, you know, there are millions of people who have that emotion, have that feeling, have that sensibility. Uh, nothing wrong with me doing this. You know, the, the, the fundamental question, you would never do that. Mm-mm. I would never do no that. Way. Why? Why wouldn't you ever do it? Why wouldn't I ever do it? <laughs> I don't I mean, know. I've done some dumb stuff in my life. As a kid, especially because I don't know any better when I'm young and dumb. But as I mature and become an adult, that there's a responsibility that, that I uphold or, or hold myself in accountable to. There's no way I would have done that. So, mm-hmm. so you know, the, the, the question's kind of bifold. What didn't that person get that you did? Great question. I mean, I mean, it, it, yeah, discipline, you know, uh, accountability, responsibility. I mean, a father and a mother. I mean, that, that gets because to be automatically. Bit, I know it's wrong. And sure, it you disgusts do. me. Sure, you do. I mean, you know, it's terribly wrong. Who, who in the world would do that? S- somebody who just didn't get what you got. I mean, I don't know what they didn't get, but but something that you got says I know better than to do that. Something they didn't get <laughs> allows them to believe that's okay. Somebody will pick it up. I mean, that's got to be their mindset. You know, it's a big old business. They got a lot of money, plenty of employees. Somebody will pick it up, put it outside that door. You know, you kind of wonder that. Mm-hmm. And here's the here's the um, the progression. You wonder if the mom or dad told the kid, sit it outside that door. It's a big old business. Got plenty of money. Somebody will pick it up. Now, but that wouldn't surprise right. me. Well, that, what does the kid think taught. then? Yeah. So what, what what example have you set for the kid then? Um, just kind of an interesting psychological exercise. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Darlington. Good morning, Steve. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Hope y'all are having a, a fantastic Friday morning. Uh, over here in Darlington, this is addressing Jerry, uh, I believe was his name, about the uh, litter issue. Over here in Darlington County, we have a litter control uh, section of codes enforcement, along with animal control and nuisance control and whatnot. And you could touch base with, uh, with them. I don't know what it is over in Florence County now, whether it's in the county or in the city would determine which office you contact. But if there's a, um area that needs particular attention paid to it, uh, it could start with them. Uh, talking about the signs, I called our office and they said uh, a good place to start asking questions would be roads and bridges. Um, and if they don't provide them, they could probably point you in the proper direction for that. Um, and you were just talking a second ago about the uh, what uh, what they were missing. I can tell you what they were missing is somewhere between six and a dozen butt cuttings, severe butt cuttings. And if that would have happened, you probably wouldn't have the problem. And I uh, hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Appreciate that. Thank I had you. about three texts during the last break <laughs> that said that. I mean, it was a little more colorful than butt cuttings. <laughs> it was ass whoopings. Is what it was. You know, uh, th- those kind of people didn't have enough of those. Look. I didn't go lacking for anything as a young person. I mean, I had real good parental guidance. I mean, my mother was a Proverbs lady. My, my dad was a responsible, accountable business guy. So I kind of had the best, best of both worlds. But but another thing there was an abundance of was ass whoopings. I mean, you know, for about three or four years of my life, I don't know that my brother or I skipped a day. I mean, if I didn't get one, he got one. <laughs> and if he didn't get one, I got one. And we deserved every one of them. I mean, it's not like we were unfairly treated. I mean, there wasn't some quota. My dad didn't come home and say, you didn't do anything today, but I've got to give you, you know, a spanking today because I didn't give you one yet. No. Every day for about three or four years, my brother and I are 17 months apart. From the time we were maybe nine until the time we turned 12, I don't remember a day 
that one of us didn't have some <laughs> issue with being responsible or accountable. But I can tell you this, my parents never, ever got tired of instilling accountability and responsibility in my brother, sister, and I. Never, not one time did they go, did they let those sorts of things go lacking. Let's go to the phone. Johnny in Hartsville. Morning, Johnny. Hey, I remember this public service announcement on TV from back in the 70s. And it, 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 every time it affected me because there was an Indian-type guy uh, on the screen, and there was some kind of verbiage going on in the background, but I don't know what it, remember what it said. But seeing the guy, and he was sitting there, and uh, while they were talking, and you could see a tear form and roll down his cheek. I remember that. I said, Oh, man, that, that makes an impression on you. And I never forgot that, bugger. And y'all were talking about that, you know, this sort of thing a few minutes ago. So, uh, uh, yeah, I love, I love that. I think that was great. A great uh, coup for the public service for the household <laughs> makers. That was a real, real winner, an yeah. Academy Award winner there. I remember that well. It's been a long time ago. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. When you thought, I think they threw trash out by the road, and he was standing there, an Indian was standing there, and he saw the tear go down his face, and – I mean, he was heartbroken that someone would, uh, you know, throw trash by the road in a country that he believed, and I think we all believe, is so great. Um, I mean, we, we all do dumb things. I mean, we, we all, in retrospect, what was I thinking? I've asked lawyer friends of mine. Here's an interesting um, kind of an exercise. I've got, I don't know, six or eight lawyer friends of mine, two pretty close friends, and I'll ask them on occasion, hey, man, the people that come to see you, are they bad people or good people who have done stupid things? And he said, Ken, I hardly ever encounter a bad person. I mean, every now and then you get one as a client or you're on the other side of some hearing. I mean, somebody's just, I mean, they're bad to the core. You can't explain it. You don't understand it. You don't try to really understand it. You've got a job to do and you do that job. But the majority of the time people come to see me that they're good, decent, average people. And you kind of scratch your head. How did you think? How did you think that made any sense? I mean, how did you believe you could get away with that? What motivated you to do this? I, I don't know. I mean, it's a sin nature. I mean, if you're somebody who believes in the Christian faith, I mean, it's the flesh. You know, it's the giving in to the flesh that all of us are suspect to and can be guilty, guilty of. But but it's just interesting. I believe. I, I know there's a there's kind of a mindset out there that people are bad by nature. I, I don't buy that. I think people are genuinely good by nature until they're affected or influenced by the world around them. And, and people are like water. I mean, most people will take the path of least resistance. And instead of getting out of the car and walking to the trash can, it's easy to assume that this business has a bunch of money and plenty of employees and somebody will pick it up. I got a buddy of mine who told me one day, when I litter, I throw it in someone's yard because I know they'll pick it up. I mean, that's a weird way to kind of... Um, I don't understand I, well, I mean, I don't understand that, but he said, when I litter... I mean, this is years ago. Right. This isn't recent. I mean, this is in our youth. But I had a friend of mine who said, I would never throw trash out of the woods because nobody picks it up. If I'm going to throw my bag of trash, I'll throw it in someone's yard and normally a manicured yard because I know they're not going to let it stay that long. And I'm going like, wow, okay, there's how you keep score. <laughs> and we all kind of sort of keep score in our own personal and unique ways. Let's go to the phone. Brent in Florence. Hello, Brent. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Brent. I'm going I'm to beat up on us a little bit. We've got these... Uh, Nice stadiums now for Florence District 1. And, Ken, you probably last year when Libby's here, you waited after to make sure she got the field real good. If you were to turn around and look up and see all the trash that's left behind these new stadiums, that'll make you sick. Mm. Um, 
couple weeks ago we had a home game at West, and I saw a gentleman eating one of your sponsors' peanuts and just throwing them onto the field. And the AD walked up and said, you know, somebody has to pick those up. We can't just cut the grass anymore. This is AstroTurf. So, you know, it, it's, it's very prevalent in Florence to see how we don't take care of nice things. Um, so that, that's just a big one. I mean, I helped pick up trash after some events at West of the day, and it's just an unbelievable amount of trash that people think it's okay to leave behind. And there's trash cans all over that campus, and they're all over South Florence and Wilson, too. We need to take a little more pride in what we have and what we've been given recently. If not, it'll be just as bad as it was three years ago. So well, explain. That's my two cents. No, that's a lot. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate that. Let, let, let's put you in a quandary here. Let's put you in a personal. I've been here before. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to come clean. You ready? I'm taking the lie detector. I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. So I go to the movie. I hadn't gone to the new football stadiums. I go to the movie. My wife and I share popcorn, get a drink each. So we watch the movie. At the end of the movie, there's a bucket half empty of popcorn. Uh, Normally empty. Um, Completely empty. There's two drink cups here. For a second, I think to myself, I paid enough to watch this movie and for that popcorn and drink for somebody else to come pick it up. But something about me, and I guess it goes back to my mom and dad. I mean, I could easily defend. Look, man, they charge me 10 bucks to get in here and another 20 for a drink and popcorn. The, I'm not picking up my cup. and I mean, I, I could easily argue. I could defend that point of view. But something inside of me says, no, that's not right. Doesn't matter what you paid. You pick up after yourself. That's your trash. You don't leave it in the floor. And, and I, I just think that's kind of an interesting, I mean, there, there's always this, it's not a dilemma with me, but for a moment, I debate within myself. I mean, Ken debates Ken. And and one Ken says, it's okay. You paid enough money. I mean, for 30 bucks, I mean, all you've done is watch a movie, eat a box of popcorn, and drink a drink. Let somebody else clean that mess up. <laughs> I can see the little what I mean, Ken on one shoulder you never with, done that? with the pitchfork and the other one with the halo. That, that's exactly yeah. what it is. I mean, that's exactly what <laughs> it is. Of course. It, it, it's, it's one guy, it, it's same guy, but, but on one side of the brain is going, it's okay to leave that trash here. You paid all this money for that movie, but the other guy's saying, no, man, that's not the way you were raised. I mean, your parents taught you better than to leave trash in the floor. There, there's a trash can at the door. Pick it up and carry it to the, to the trash can. But, but you see, I mean, it's easy to be influenced by uh, these blind spots that everybody has. But, yeah, I mean, we got new football stadiums. The least we can do, the least we can do is take care of them. And taking care of means, you know, pick your cup and, and can or whatever it is and, and carry it to the trash can. But, once again, a lot of America, the fundamental basis of America is personal liberty and freedom. Well, personal liberty and freedom comes with a responsibility. Being free is not free. I mean, I know that's clichéic, but it's so true. Having liberties, I mean, it, it is liberating. There is no doubt about it. By definition, having liberties is liberating. But having those freedoms, having those liberties, having those opportunities require a certain effort. And I think the effort is responsibility. So, so I always, I, I mean, I don't say it to anybody, but I go like, no, that's my popcorn bowl. That's my drink cup. It's my responsibility to take it to the trash can. Simple as that. No matter what I paid. Because I could defend leaving it there by the amount of money I get charged to enjoy that two hours of entertainment. But but something about, I don't know, that side of the brain, I, I still go back to my mom and dad and the values they instilled in me. And maybe that's what, you know, I got that some other people, I don't say a lot of other people because most people got a good dose of what I got, but some didn't. And um, 
just kind of a, I don't know, Rev, an interesting human perspective mm-hmm. about really nothing, but, but is something. 843-661-0937. Do we have an open phone line? Uh, nope. They're okay, all no open phone line. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Clint in Camden. Hi, Clint. Good morning. Good morning, Ken. I'm going to tell you, Ken, who that guy is that uh, leaves that trash in the parking lot. It's the same one, self-serving, self-important person that leaves the shopping cart in that empty space. When he gets done with it, he just shoves it over into the next empty parking space so somebody else has to put it, you move it out of the way to go park. Take care, guys. Roll Tide. <laughs> Thank you very much. Roll Tide. He's out on a limb with football season around the corner. Well, I'd love to be an Alabama no, fan. I'd love to be a Gamecock fan, but it would be so different to be an Alabama fan. Uh, for, for a Gamecock fan, every Saturday is an adventure. For Alabama, ah, one or two Saturdays are adventures. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Got to do some trivia here in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. Cocky Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, guys. I, I want to know, who else does like I do when you leave a hotel room? <laughs> How do you leave a hotel room, Dave? <laughs> I clean the damn thing up because I can't stand the thought of a housekeeper coming in and saying, oh, my God, what slob use this room like? <laughs> I do everything but make the bed back up. Interesting. So I hope that goes along with it. Your mama taught you a lesson when you were young. I'm sure it does. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about, I mean, obviously I got my influence from my mom and dad and a lot of other things in my life, coaches and, uh, you know, Sunday school teachers and friends and family. I mean, they're, they're, all of us have had influences from uh, near and afar. But but my dad would always say, you know, if you half-ass that, you'll half-ass anything. I mean, I, that, that was just like a part of my life. I mean, it was mm-hmm. not... I mean, it was a daily thing. I mean, it was just, I mean, that was driven yeah, into me in a very, very. You don't accept any half assery. No, no. But, and, and you think about this, and I, and I think we all come, I mean, obviously we come from different places, but but my my dad was starting a business when I was young. I mean, I was born in 63. My dad started a business in 63. As we got a little older, my dad would say things to me like, um, I wish I didn't have to be that intense. I mean, when y'all were younger, I wish I had more time. I wish I could have let my guard down, but I made a decision. And that decision required my laser-focused effort. I mean, I've told the story before. My dad said, son, I know you got a game, and I know I need to be there, but I can't. I just flat can't be there. I got too many things going on at work. I, and, and I, you know, so there was always a an intensity in my dad because he was hanging on by a thread. I mean, he didn't let us know that as kids. But, I mean, in retrospect, I mean, in, you know, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s and some of those formative years, my, my dad was very, very committed to a business, not because he was trying to be business guy of the year, but he wanted to make a better way for his family. And I think in retro, I mean, I, there was a little bit of, um, I don't want if I was angry with him, but there was a little bit like, come on, man, everybody else is, dad's here and you're not here. But no, I mean, he made a commitment to be successful at something that he thought would make all of our lives better. And that required a certain intensity. And, and that intensity became very normal in my life. I mean, it, it was very... Uh, when I got around people that weren't that intense, it was like, what's wrong with these people? I mean, kind of sleepwalking. My, 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 you know, I've often said, I'd, I'd sit at the hospital visiting a family or a friend. I'd say, I'd, I'd look around. I'd say, my dad ran this hospital with a third of the people they were running it with. You know what I mean? He, mm-hmm. he, he would be there and he'd say, what, what are the what They don't need these three people. What, what are these four people? Why they got these rooms over here? Why, why couldn't they take the cart and move it over here instead of moving it? I mean, it was always, that was a, it's just a way of life with me. And, um, and I'd like to believe I've taken that commitment and work ethic 
uh, to do with this feeble attempt to ready your brain. Do we have an open line? Yes. Okay. Uh, we got one call, and then we, we got to get through that quick. Let, and let's go to the call, then we got trivia. trivia. Uh, Lisa and Aiken. Hey, guys. Sorry, there's a mower out here. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to follow up on the litter. You know, I think it, it all goes back to you. You are, you are, you know what you know. And I used to work with first-time offenders. And we were on our way back from a camping trip on the highway, and the girl just rolled my window down and threw her cup out. And I had to literally pull over the side of the road and make her go pick it up, and she couldn't understand why. I'm sure she saw her parents do it. I'm sure it's what she has been seeing. And I work in 17 counties in the county and all over the, all over the state, and I can tell you that it is a third, looks like a third-world country in some of these blue, blue, blue counties. And it goes back to if you don't have any anything invested in it, why do you care what it looks like? I was at a football game for the Gamecocks in Florida. It was a bowl game. The people came from New Jersey to watch. And right next to our car, the same thing happened. They didn't even bother to put it in a bag. They left all their bottles, their cans, and their cups and their dishes right there on the grass. Mm. And when I confronted them about it, they acted like I was the bad guy. So That's very interesting. Yeah, you you know what you know. Thank, so, thank you, Lisa. Appreciate that. You know what you know. That's very well said. Hey, it's time for our Pepsi of Florence takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia question. You ready? We talk a lot about music and the movies and pop culture and all these other sorts of things. Who was the youngest member of the Traveling Wilburys? The youngest member okay. of the Traveling Wilburys was whom? 843-661-0937. The correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence as well as two Takes Mondays to Make Fridays t-shirts. 843-661-0937. Who was the youngest member of the Traveling Wilburys? I know what my guess would be. Okay, but don't make a guess. I'm not. I'm just saying I'm I'm interested to hear if I'm right. It's a little bit more difficult question. Yeah. First of all, people are going, who's traveling a little bit? Okay, yeah, okay, that was a super group. That, uh, okay, got a call? Uh, yes. Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? I believe it's Tom Petty. You're right, Tom Petty, the youngest of the traveling Wilburys. Who is this and where are you calling from? Uh, Joe from Marion. Okay, Joe, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for calling. Hope everything is good over Marion Way. Um, yep, thanks to Pepsi of Florence. So it was who? It was um, Jeff Lynn, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty. Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison. George Harrison. George Harrison. The Traveling Wilburys. You know how they got the name? Tell I them, do. Ref. Tell yeah. them. Uh, Wilbury, I read this, is a, is a term they use about mistakes when they're recording songs. And I guess what they say is, we'll bury it in the mix. We'll bury it so you won't actually hear the mistake. And I guess that kind of went from there. And they had another name. I can't remember what it was. The something Wilburys, but it ended up with Traveling. And Tom Petty, the late Tom Petty, was the youngest member of the tra- Not the weirdest. We know who the weirdest is. That would be oh, yeah. Bob Dylan. Bob. <laughs> yeah. Um, a complete and total <laughs> misunderstood man. Oh, <laughs> Let's, be kind. Let's be kind. Very <laughs> misunderstood. Hey, enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.